What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 92 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And with the two of us to finish off the third volume of Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive is none other than, of course, Josh Harkey of the 17th Shard. Josh, thanks again for returning for us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And today's a big day, gentlemen. We have an enormous discussion before us as we wrap up Oathbringer with parts four and five. Now, Drew, if you dare, Let's get our weekly recap. Take it away, dude. I'm going to make this as quick as possible. <laughs> okay. Um, because not only do we have parts four and five, we also have interludes. Yeah. Uh, but this first set of interludes after part three is a set of five interludes, which is ridiculous. Um, three of which are Venli interludes, as she is now in her envoy form. Uh, she is a regal now, and she has been given the title of last listener and odium has her basically preaching to the newly formed singer nation uh being a a a mouthpiece to help them kind of get behind the you know the new operation we also have a brief scene with a washwoman named mem who apparently has been working alongside the herald shalash for a little while uh working for marais and uh Mraze, of course, set it all up to get to Ash, and and he tells her at the end of this interlude, he tells Ash that he knows where Talon is. And then we have another uh, interlude from a bright lord named Sheller, who has been fighting in Herdaz and is uh, taken uh, taken captive by a a pretty ruthless Herdazian general. Who gives him a couple of options for his punishment, and he chooses to uh, go with the hog, which of course is not a hog; it is a giant freaking great shell that comes out of the water and promptly kills him. From there, we have two main plot lines in part four. Uh, we have Dalinar and Navani and Yasna, as they are getting their coalition together and getting ready uh, for an attack on. Thalen City, as they have figured out, but just as everything is coming together, Teravangian's duplicity rears its head, and several revelations are made, the most uh, bombastic of which is the reason behind the Recreants, and that is that humans are in fact the Voidbringers, humans destroyed their previous world and invaded Roshar, and this knowledge was what caused the Knights Radiant to abandon their oaths. Uh, and our other main plotline in this part is with Kaladin and Shalon and Adeline and the whole crew who survived from Kolinar. They are in Shadesmar trying to get to, uh, trying to get back to the physical realm. Uh, they're traveling through the realm of the Spren and have a couple of fun stops on the way, meet some interesting Spren, run into some Fused. So that's where we end it with part four, but we are not done there. We have another Venli interlude as Odium is preparing his uh, forces. We have a Risen interlude. She is now working, uh, accounting basically for the main like gem reserve in Thalen City. And a light weaving fused breaks in to try to steal a perfect gem. But it is uh, um, 
uh, stopped by Risen and Cheery Cheery, who sucks away the investiture from the light weaving. And last but not least, we have Teft, who is pretty much at rock bottom. He, he has not revealed that he has bonded a spren at this point, but he has, and he's, he's uh, made some very poor decisions. And one of those poor decisions as we head into part five is that back earlier in the book, he sold his coat to get money to buy Fire Moss, and that coat was used to betray Bridge 4 and Urithiru, and open the Oathgate to Kolinar, and uh, the Fused are attacking there, the Honor Blade is stolen, and uh, while Dalinar is stranded in Thalen City, uh, a massive army of Singers arrives, but more than that, a bunch of Void Spren, as well as two of the Unmade, and Odium himself. And we have a massive, massive battle. Amaram's forces are all taken over by Void Spren and the Thrill. Dalinar is confronted by Odium. Dalinar challenges Odium to a contest of champions, and Odium agrees, and in turn names Dalinar his champion. Dalinar refuses, and has quite a showdown with the Thrill, uh, whereupon he traps the Thrill in that perfect gemstone, and we have a, a big ol' big ol' moment where Dalinar opens Honor's Perpendicularity, rescues Kaladin and Shallan and Abilin and Maya and Syl and Pattern and all of them, and uh, Odium is defeated, but not without cost. And we are left in our uh, kind of denouement, where Yasna is crowned Queen of Alethkar, after Adeline refuses it, Adeline and Shallan are married, and Shallan's brothers show back up. Once again, they are delivered to Urithiru, thanks to Mraze. And we have a brief little epilogue, as always, from Wet, where he does some very interesting things with magic, and also says some very interesting words to a very interesting little spren. <laughs> yep. Yep, 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 yep. <sighs> Nicely done. So I tried to keep that under a half an hour. I, I, I gotta give that to you. That was very, very efficiently done. I don't understand. So... What? Siri? Apparently Siri, yeah, Siri heard me talking too. Mm. <laughs> she said she didn't understand. Uh, I was gonna say, now she's gonna be, you know, placing pre-orders for Rhythm of War is what she's gonna be doing. After having heard that. <laughs> now, so we, we, as we always do, let's start with style here. Uh, my first style point here is, is something that... Kind of, I'll start with something that just kind of bothered me before I go into things that I really, really loved. This little, little thing here. I, I've said before that I'm not a huge fan of part four of Oathbringer. I'm going to be elaborating on that oh. today. I just don't really care about the Spren societies and Shadesmar. Like, again, this is something I said in a previous episode. My maximum capacity for characters about which I actually kind of give a crap is, is, is reaching its saturation point. And so when I'm, I'm reading about all these different <laughs> Spren societies and these different cities and them having to travel through Shadesmar, through the Oceans of Beads, and trying to find their way, you know, around the Fused and get to the, the I almost said the waypoint, wow, it, get to the, uh, the portal. It's just, it, the Waygate, it's just, I don't know, it's Waygate, what the hell am okay. I saying? Oh my god! The Oathgate! <laughs> ah! I'm still a little bit in Wheel of Time mode. I was just listening to that earlier today. I don't know. I just... It didn't really land for me. I couldn't really find too much to 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 look forward to. When I, when I, I knew that Odium was inbound, and I knew that 
you know, Phelan City was about to be the site of a, of a huge battle for the future of Roshar. I just, all of this stuff happening in Shadesmar, I just, eh, I was a little iffy on. What about you two? I loved it. You loved it. <laughs> it wasn't just good. You I'm loved a, it. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Part 4 in Oathbringer. Wow, okay. I love the expansion of the world building. Uh, I I do like Ico and Notum as characters, and uh, but but mostly the implications of what Brandon does in this section, showing that you know this fortune keeper and this whole okay yeah world hopping trade and and the the artifacts and the way investiture is valued as currency, uh, it's. It's just super cool to me. I'm endlessly fascinated by it. I recall feeling a little bit overwhelmed um, the first time I read it, partly because of the emotional impact of the end of part three that I'm like still trying to process while all of a sudden now I'm being bombarded with like this whole other world. Um, it was a lot to take in, I think. Um, but I mm-hmm. I love it. I love um, the thing that I love about it is the... F- uh, the fantastical side that it brings to the books. Um, so much fantasy these days, I feel like is very um, familiar. It's very earth, very based on earth, right? I mean, it's very medieval. A lot of times it's um, game of Thrones. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very familiar and Shadesmar is just the most fantastical out there. Bizarre. Um, uh, I just I love that aspect of it, um, so I love it for that. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I guess I should ask Rob: Is it does it bother you? Is it mostly the Shadesmar aspect that bothers you, or is it also down? It, for me, it's line? the fact that Spren are still magical creatures, and I, like I, I understand that they are sentient, but I it's a little hard for me to buy into the fact that they are sentient enough and independent enough to make entire societies for themselves mm-hmm. and to have politics in those societies that, for me, kind of huh. waste a little bit of time when I'm trying to get back to the physical. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just... I'm all aboard. It's, I love this stuff. It's certainly a, a common complaint that I see that people get to Shadesmar and they're like, oh, I'm not really into this. Okay. That makes um, I, feel I can understand. I can understand that. Uh, but yeah, to me, it's not, uh, I mean, you, you just said it's hard to, you're ready to get back to the physical, right? To me like that Shadesmar itself is the destination. Like I, I'd love to just hang out here. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of like that so. with the spiritual. Anytime we get a glimpse of the spiritual, I'm like, oh man, this is what I've been waiting books for. This, these little, these little nuggets are what I fucking focus on. But Shadesmar for me is just like, oh, it's an in-between stage. It's like a nebulous sort of stage. It's anything kind of goes, and that just kind of means that nothing really matters. Shadesmar for me is just, eh, I'm just. This is a personal thing. I don't want to claim like. I don't know. The, the, this part sucks. That's definitely not what I'm trying to say. For me personally, I was just a little impatient trying to get back to the physical. It's just me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys style-wise about the interludes. Here. Okay. Because uh, for one thing, we've we've discussed on previous episodes how almost uniformly interludes... Uh, have three per section 
across this series. Yeah. And there was one set in Words of Radiance that had four, and I was surprised by that because I didn't remember there being four. And now here we have one with five, which is crazy. Um, uh, and and once again, like in uh, Words of Radiance, the where where there were four and two of them were Eshonai and and maybe it was a uh, um. How do you put it? Like a pacing thing to break them up when they probably could have gone together as one with just a scene break. Um, it's definitely like that here with these three Venli. You know, we have Venli, Mem, Venli, Scheller, Venli. And each it's each stage of this envoy role that Venli has been forced into for Odium, each like, progression of it. So I can understand why that is, but but it's just it's very jarring to me seeing these outliers when so much of the Stormlight Archive is very deliberately structured, and so that makes me wonder if you know at some point in the back five of the Stormlight Archive we're going to see in book eight one set of interludes that's five, you know, uh, because otherwise it 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 just doesn't. It doesn't fit the pattern. Well, you know? why does it have to be a pattern would be my next... I mean, this is still... You, you have to let the creative juices flow. You, he, Sanderson has sure. to does what feel what feels right. Has to does? Has to do. You could tell I've been drinking a little bit of this bourbon before we started here. Um, like, I'm sure there well, are many, many scenes absolutely. that he deleted that would have also broken the pattern, right? But some that he chose to, to, to keep. You know, I don't, I don't think it needs to be as strict as you might fear that it has to be. No, I'm not saying it has to be. I'm just saying that it, it, it is an outlier. It, it, it stands out when so much of the series is very deliberately structured and these interludes also feel deliberately structured and then we have these anomalies. I don't know. Uh, For me, they don't feel that it's, deliberately it's a, structured. It's, it's noteworthy to me. Okay. Josh? I guess I'm somewhere in the middle there. I... I um... I don't think too much of it. To me, it is. I think that it is an intentional. He's he's done it intentionally to split up uh, Vinley's interludes there to give a little a little bit of breathing room. I don't know that mm-hmm. this sequence of interludes for me would have worked as a single sequence with a just kind of a break in the middle of them because of the. Yeah. It's it's a it's quite a transition that Vinley goes through over the course of these three interludes, where all of a sudden she's put into envoy form, and so we kind of get to experience what is that what is that like for her and by the end of it she's just super bitter turned off from odium she's really just crushed in a really dark place Mm -hmm. um so i think that maybe brandon felt like he wanted to space them out so that as the reader you're kind of forced to stop and kind of process here's where she was you know here's a beginning here's a middle and here's an end digestible bites jumping straight from one to the next yeah for sure yeah, yeah. Uh, like there's there's absolutely a narrative purpose for it, yeah. um, like in the micro, which you know which makes sense. Yeah. It's just that it stands out to me in the the macro yeah. view. And with with a character like Vanley, there does it does appear that there are very specific character beats, and there is if you if you'll pardon the expression, there is a rhythm to her character development, but. At the same time, there's already so much happening and so much left to happen that it feels like 
Brandon, I don't know, if I were to guess, it, it feels to me like he needs to flesh out this character a little bit more for his plans in the future, but there's not a, not a ton of room to do that in the narrative proper, and so a little bit of that might be bleeding through into the narrative, or into the interludes, you know, as, as he has to justify certain turning points in her journey. Well, yeah, I mean, her, the, the main focus of Venley's story is in the interludes. She is the interlude novella yeah. for this book. Yeah, that's something so, I, I, I always fail to remember while I'm reading these. So that, that is a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my, my other main um, style point was just how Brandon uses point of view again. I mean, we've talked about this in the past where you get to the Sanderlanch and <laughs> I mean, you just, you go and look at the title page for part five and the character list is three lines on it. And one of the, one of the mm -hmm. characters is just the Knights Radiant. Yeah. And I will never forget reading this book for the first time and flipping to that page and looking to see who is going to have a point of view and just seeing the Knights Radiant and getting so excited. <laughs> yeah. Just one of those majestic moments that you love in fantasy. Yeah. And and then and then the next one after the Knights Radiant is Ash. And you're just like, oh yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah. for anybody that has the context. <laughs> it's just getting better. You know, you're like, oh. <laughs> if you're a Drew McCaffrey, you're going, oh boy, I'm so excited about this. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you get to the end of it and you see Vire and you're like, Who's Vire? Mm, who is you know? Vire? <laughs> like, what is Vire? <laughs> yeah, just mm, tons of fun. I have um, a small little, uh, a, a subtle thing. I, I wrote it down as subtle, but I also found it to be very profound. We've talked about this before with, with authors, again, especially like um, Glenn Cook, where you can appreciate a character writing different voices with different characters that are very distinct. Um, there's, a, there's a moment in ch chapter 102 in Celebrant. I'm going to be referring to this chapter actually quite a few times in this episode. But in this particular moment, for my style point here, there's a fused that is described by Shallan as standing over Eco, looming like a stern tutor over a foolish student. And that line leapt out to me on this reread. It it, it reads like like an, an uh, something that Shalon would honestly think because Shalon herself she's known many of these stern tutors in her past life. Um, and I wrote down if this was from Kaladin's point of view, I dare say that this line would have been closer to something like looming like a drill instructor or looming like a sergeant. Yeah. Right, And mm -hmm. so when I get to little moments like this, these little descriptors that feel so organic and feel so natural with that character, I have to stop and, and just appreciate what a brilliant piece of writing it really is. And it, it just it's something that's so easy to just miss completely if you're just reading on surface level. But there are, are always these little things that you can find when you dig in deep enough and it's just it gives the it gives me so much more about this book to appreciate. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I've talked about it at length on our Wheel of Time episodes, how Robert Jordan, in a lot of ways, is like sort of the modern master of point of view. And these are the things that you can clearly see. Brandon Sanderson learned. He, he worshipped at the altar of Robert Jordan during his foundational years as a writer and learned so much from working on the Wheel of Time. Uh, 
you, you know, I, I, I'll try not to go into spoilers, but in Brandon Sanderson's work in The Wheel of Time, he was very heavy-handed with this sort of uh, close third-person voice where certain characters felt like caricatures of themselves yeah. in the Wheel of Time books that Brandon Sanderson did. And before working on the Wheel of Time, we didn't have quite as much of this strong, unique voice going on in Brandon Sanderson's own books. But after the Wheel of Time, with the Stormlight Archive especially, is when we're getting that to to a, a much more subtle degree and a stronger you know representation of it. I'd love to like really thoroughly analyze one day. Uh, I because I feel like um, this is a a really big point, I guess. But way back in I think part one, we were kind of talking about our experience with Oathbringer and how it felt different than the previous ones. And yeah, I've kind yeah, of wondered. Yeah. Um, because you you pick up Way of Kings and that was written right in the middle of of him writing Wheel of Time, um, and I feel like that it really shows you can you can feel that influence so so tangibly. Um, Words of Radiance wasn't that far after Oathbringer was. Um, it, I mean, it was it was what seven years after that it was published, um, and and now we've got Rhythm of War a, a decade after. Um, and uh, I don't. It's interesting to me to to wonder. I I wonder. Find myself wondering how much of that influence is kind of. Um, I, I guess where where Brandon is headed, right? So like, he was really left with a strong influence from Wheel of Time as he started off the Stormlight Archive, and he's certainly taken some of that, and you can see elements of that as he's moving along. But at the same time, I think Stormlight is kind of evolving into more of Brandon's own thing as he's grown as an author, and so it's uh, it's. Uh, I don't know. It's not a great point because I don't really know what the um, the conclusion of that is. I don't know. I have a good idea of what that what Brandon's style is, uh, but it is interesting. I think to look for that and to try and make sense of what Brandon's uh, how he's evolving. As, yeah, as the sort of yeah. It doesn't need to be questioned. Written. You know, just a commentary is. It's still interesting to consider. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really astute point with Way of Kings especially because even though he you know the way of kings that we have is a rewrite of you know his original yeah. plan for the way of kings and uh and and it is a more mature book than his original plan but also a hefty chunk of Kaladin's plotline in the way of kings was taken out and revised from Dragonsteel Dragonsteel Prime which Brandon was writing as his, like, you know, that that was, according to him, his sort of attempt at writing the big Wheel of Time-esque epic fantasy. His magnum opus. Way back in, like, 2001, 2002, 2003, you know, somewhere in there. And, uh, and, and so even though The Way of Kings that we have now is a more mature book, it still has a lot of those hallmarks of a Wheel of Time-esque epic fantasy. Hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, there. Okay, so I have a, another little thing um, just just to complain about, just a little bit, before I go into my, my glowing about this climax here. Before we get there, though, again, with Part 4 in Celebrant, there is this moment at the end of that chapter 
where everything has gone to hell, and the fused have taken over the ship that they were going to barter passage on. And then, as Kaladin is arguing with everyone else about how to proceed, Syl pipes up, and she goes, Guys, I might have an idea, a great bad idea, but I guess nobody was listening to her. You know, the freaking honor spren who while you're traveling through Shadesmar, you might want to listen to. And then she has to keep repeating herself. Guys. And then they keep talking. Guys. And as if she's not even speaking, Kaladin just begins his last line here. We need a plan, Kaladin said. If nobody... And then she has to jump in and just and just do her own thing. She has to actually take action. And I just... I find myself... Again, this is, these are, this is one of these parts where I feel like these characters should not have reacted this way in that they were slightly oh. changed just to, to to drive this dramatic point because i mean sill is very very clearly distressed here and they're all just completely ignoring her and it might just be because i've listened to this more on audiobook at this point than i have reading it i mean i've read it <laughs> five or six times but i've heard it on audiobook 10 or 20 times and so the 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 urgency in in michael kramer's delivery it just it, it makes me go why is everybody ignoring her in this moment and, and it's just one of these moments <laughs> where i feel like Oh, the dramatic impact was more important than staying true to the character. You know? See, I, I disagree with that there. I I think it makes sense. And I think this is a an artifact of them being in Shadesmar and not being used to being in Shadesmar. Overwhelmed? What 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 Adeline and, and Shaban and Kaladin are used to is tiny little sill fluttering around, mostly invisible, and like whispering to Kaladin, if anything. And so they're used to not necessarily treating her as the center of attention. So they might project that onto the full size. Yeah, and so they're used to having these conversations among themselves in the physical realm and not used to having like pattern or sill as active participants as like full quote unquote human participants in in their conversations. And so uh, I I thought that rung true and was just one of those indications okay. of like these these people are fish out of water here. I'll admit I didn't I would think say in Shadesmar. Yeah. Even even since they've been in Shadesmar, I think Syl has kind of taken a back seat. Um, they ask her questions and her answer is, is most of the time is I don't know, you know, like it I don't really remember much from yeah. when And I was she's here. in prison for the other half, right? So Yeah. She's behind yeah. the scenes <laughs> yeah. there. When they when they I mean when they first find themselves coming through the oath gate shallan's the one that really saves them and pulls them out mm-hmm. you know off to shore um they all sit around it's the humans that make a plan of what they're going to do um uh azure's the one that points them says hey let's go look for a lighthouse you know um i, I don't really think sill has ever actually stepped up and tried to be a leader of the group at any point so it yeah. makes sense to me i guess that yeah they don't really pay much attention to her in a, in a moment like that when they're stressed. Yeah, I know. I think I just, I keep putting myself in Kaladin's shoes or another character's shoes, and I'm thinking about how I would be in this, as you say, fish out of water situation. I would be clinging to anybody that looks like they have, you know, a lifeboat or, or a flotate. Like, like I would be looking for anybody who knows this area and sill and, and, and pattern as the spren who are native to this realm. You know, I think like I just I don't know. I would be deferring to them so much more than I than I see them doing. But again, again, this could be a very personal thing. This just could like this could be who I am. But 
I just, I was like, oh my god, guys, listen, she's got something important. Stop bickering for fuck's sake. But, you know, it could be great character work. That, that little bit of frustration, that little bit of organic, like, yeah. I, I will admit that I didn't think, I hadn't considered what Drew had said that, you know, uh, Syl has been, and what you, Josh, said, Syl's been a little bit more behind the scenes at this point, and I just keep thinking of how, yeah. well, she's a full-grown person here. She's, like, as big as they are. She has a voice equal to theirs. You know, patterns there. They're surrounded by this alien world. But, yeah, there is a lot of predisposition that I hadn't really factored into that equation that you guys might have a seriously good point on. I'd actually even take that further and to say this is an interesting style point of one thing that I do also love about Shades Mar is the way that it takes these sprin that we've known in one form for the last mm. uh, two and a half books yeah. and puts them in a whole new light. Um, and I love the way that, I don't know, it totally reframes how you think of pattern, pattern you've seen before, um, but not very much in this form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then Syl is as a, you know, full size woman in this world where she's, you know, a, a person. Um, yeah. It's, it's an interesting way to kind of reframe these characters that we've known. Uh, That's a very so. good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Uh, do you guys have any more style points or should we head on into characters? I have a couple more there. Um, one will be a little longer. The other will be very, very brief. Um, I talked about this last week and by last week, I mean last week for those listening, because <laughs> yeah. it's been like three weeks since we've recorded the last episode, <laughs> that being Oathbringer part three. But there are things that are super predictable, in my opinion, that completely take me out of the narrative. Again, again, another personal point here. In this case, I'm talking about something that Drew referenced in his recap. Teft's coat. When he yeah. was lost in the moss, earlier in the book, um, in itself, that scene was an absolutely phenomenal bit of writing, in my opinion. I loved reading it. It was a privilege to read, I will say that. Bridge 4 arrived to drag Teft out of his his hole there. And, and Teft was feeling shame over having sold his coat to pay for the moss. And literally on my first read, on this would have been like November 14th or 15th of 2017 with my reading speed, I came across this little detail and my first thought at this moment was, oh, crap, a Bridge 4 coat now wandering around in the ether. I'm sure that's not going to come back and bite them in the ass. And sure enough, 600 pages later, it does. When when Rock and company are, are just knifed up and Bridge 4 is, is assaulted and uh, every, the attack on your theory really begins, there's, I forget which bridgeman it was, muttering about the attacker wearing a Bridge 4, like a, I think it was a lieutenant's coat. Uh, Teft is still a lieutenant yep. at this point, right? I was already rolling my eyes at this point. I was like, yep, I saw that coming like five or six hundred pages ago. And I don't know, I feel like there was a small attempt to make this a kind of sudden and shocking revelation. So it really fell flat for me because of my own expectation. And again, this is probably just a problem with me. You know, the kind of reader that I am. I'm always looking so closely at these details that, you know, sometimes on the rare occasion, I actually do get it right. And when it comes, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that wasn't really a surprise. And it makes me think, like, what is wrong with me? Do I like punishment or something? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think you're right there. And, and there's something to the fact that 
you and I and Josh, you know, we've we've read Brandon Sanderson books, mm-hmm. so many of them, so many different times. You you start to learn how Brandon Sanderson likes to seed his foreshadowing. Yeah. And so it's easier to pick up on little things like that after you've read, you know, Mistborn and Warbreaker and Elantris and Stormlight and Arithmetist, Reckoners, you know, whatever, Skyward. Like, you've, you've read all of these things, and probably when you were reading them, the, the first couple of them, you wouldn't have picked up on these kind of things. But now yeah. you're used to, you know what Brandon likes to do. And so something like Teft's Coat jumps out at you. Or, you know, like, if, if I were to go back and read Mistborn the Final Empire for the first time, but having retained all of my knowledge of Warbreaker and, and everything else, I would, you know, immediately pick up on a couple of things in that that I didn't pick up on when I read that book for the first time in 2007, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true, very true. The the funny thing to me is that it bothers you because I, I love it when I catch something like that and then it shows <laughs> yeah, up yeah. later. I, I just feel real proud of myself. See, I, 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 think, I think what it is... If I were to, to to narrow it down as well as I can, I think it's just because I I predict many many things. Most of them turn out to be wrong, and I'll be getting into that later in this episode. Trust me, during our Cosmere wide <laughs> spoilers discussion. But if I predict it and it comes true, that's not necessarily you know a, a fallen point. But when I predict it and it's kind of passed off as supposed to be a surprise, and then it comes true. And then I'm like, oh, okay. It's like you you tried to hide it, but I saw it. Whereas a lot of these predictions, like these moments where I feel like, oh my god, I got that right. It's because I couldn't, you know, I just, I had to work for it. But with something like this, I felt like it was a little heavy-handed. And again, I, I, I refer back to what Drew said. This could very well be, probably, probably is, the fact that I've just read Brandon Sanderson <laughs> so, so much at this point. I don't know. Like, w- w- when it was revealed that Teft's coat had been a major, you know, turning point in this, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, but why was it presented as a surprise when I was expecting it? Again, very personal. Very, very personal. But with things that, um, with revelations, I don't know, like like uh, theories that I get correct... Where is that delineation? I'm I, I'm going to look for it well, going so, forward. Like, what do I use to distinguish the yeah, two? Yeah, I think I fall more toward Josh's side of things, where I'm happy when I figure things out in advance, when I pick up on little bits of foreshadowing like that. But I know where my delineation is, is like when too much of it is predictable. And, and to use an example, Foundry side. By Robert Jackson Bennett. It was an enjoyable book. I I had fun reading it. But I mean, you can go back to our our part one episode of Foundry Side. Rob and I basically guessed the entire climax of that book halfway through it. Like we we got yeah. almost every single prediction right. <laughs> and and so because of that, because there were basically no real surprises at the end of the book it fell a little flat for me. I, like I said, I still enjoyed reading the book and I recommend it to people, but uh, but that's where that line kind of gets crossed for me. In something like Oathbringer, yeah, I saw Tef's coat coming, but that's one thing. Oh, well. I didn't guess 
the whole you know climax of the at the Battle of Phelan Field or you know Phelan Field. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so like as long as there are things that still surprise me and still engage me at the end of the book, I'm fine with it, and I even enjoy picking up little things like that. Yeah, I, I'm still sitting here trying to figure out what it is about, like, uh, revelations like uh, uh, non-Helleran being, you know, involved with the Skybreakers. And that prediction that I had that turned out to be right a book later, I, w- I felt so happy and I felt so vindicated and I felt so righteous. But something like this with Teft and his lost coat and it comes true 600 pages later or 500 pages later i rolled my eyes at that one i'm trying to figure out why it is there is a difference there maybe it's because it's in the same volume and i didn't have time to discuss that kind of theory with other people in between i don't know i am going to be looking introspectively going forward trying to figure out what it is about me personally that delineates those two that that draws that distinguishing line but with Teft's coat in this case, I did see it coming from a long way away. And something about the way it was presented as a surprise, I just like, oh, okay, whatever, you know. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, uh, was that all your style points? Um, My last style point, and this could be very quick or, or a little bit longer, just depending on what you guys think. I just want to talk about the length of the climax how long this climax was. I mean, it, there, there was a point on this reread where we got to the point where Dalinar actually ascends, you know, I am unity, and then he smashes his hands together, and, and he, he draws that perpendicularity forward. He, the, the knights gather, and at this point where Dalinar is starting to give orders to the separate knights, I'm like, oh my god, this is so amazing. This climax, on the audiobook at least, has been going for like two hours already, and I looked at the time remaining, and there's still four and a half hours left. And I was like, what the hell? Like, it's this is so like a 200-page climax. Did you get any fatigue at all while you were going through this white-knuckled no. climax? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all? There was no part of you, like, the halfway time... through, you were like, I've yeah. been on the edge of my seat for three hours, and I still have three hours going. Like, no? The first time I read this book, I read the entire damn book in one sitting. Yeah, this could so, be a reading speed no, thing. No, there was no fatigue. Especially considering, like I said, there I, was like, absolutely... most of my rereads have been on audiobook. I've done a few reads through the physical here on my e-reader that I'm showing you right now, but like that's like, again, five reads, whereas my audiobook rereads have been like 10 or 20 at this point. And with Michael Kramer's slow but epic delivery, yeah, I mean, it's 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 many, many hours long. I'm just like, oh my god, this... This, when you think the climax is about to end, it just speeds up. It just picks up more momentum. And there were points where I was like, "It's I'm exhausted. You know, I'm still, like, gripping it because I cannot put it down. But I'm already feeling the fatigue. Like, holy crap. I, I just need, like, a, a, a small sectional break of some sort. But I couldn't, you know, really articulate what it was. I don't know. You, you can't have too much of a good thing. I don't know. I think yeah. you can. This climax <laughs> well, is like so, 400 pounds of cocaine. At some point, wrong. you have to slow down. <laughs> Did you have the same feeling reading a, a certain a battle in the Wheel of Time? Yes, <laughs> I absolutely I, did. That's what I think of. I absolutely okay. yeah. did. But I think in the Wheel of Time, because it was the end of book 14, not to go into any spoilers, don't worry, but because there had been 13, 14 books leading up to this, 15 if you count the prequel, 
you know, I, I realized that it was, it was meant, like, aesthetically, it was meant to drag you down. It was supposed yeah. to be like what one of the characters earlier in the book had said. You will get everything that you've been wanting. You will get even more. By the end, you will be wishing for a break. So, aesthetically placed within the context of that book, even though it was way longer, I still felt it was appropriate. For book three of the Stormlight Archive, this is still presented as, you know, just the end of book three. Not the end of the series, the end of book three. And I'm just like, oh my god, I've been gripping this book so hard for a hundred pages, and I'm only halfway through this damn thing. Jesus, I need a breath. I'm excited to get you to read the Gap Cycle. Really? <laughs> because that was the, the fifth book of the Gap Cycle. Yeah. To, to me, like, literally from page one until the end of the book, yeah. white knuckle grip. On, on that hard and your your, like, your tendons was, and your hands get sore it's still good it's still yeah. amazing it's still everything you wanted oh, yeah. but it's like it's starting to hurt you <laughs> in a way it's like oh my <laughs> god there's just too much going on yeah, yeah so yeah that's that's everything that's all i wanted to say about style i'm ready to go into characters now that we're you know 40 and some okay. odd minutes into our episode here uh let's start with Calvin. okay okay because uh i like I really like what Brandon did with Kaladin in in parts four and five of this book. I love the decision he made to not have Kaladin swear his idea. Mm, same, same. I agree mm. with that. It it not only makes Kaladin's character arc more interesting because it's he has to do more work to earn something than he has in any of the the books before it. But it also messes with the predictability. It, it, it would be so easy as an author to just be like, okay, we, here's, here's our character. Uh, in in uh, Way of Kings, our main characters are Shallan and Kaladin, and at the end of the book, they each, you know, swear, swear an oath. They have an ideal, you know, whatever. And, uh, and then the end of Words of Radiance, they each... Swear another ideal, have a, a you know, speak another truth, and then in Oathbringer, they don't. And I like that. Uh, and Kaladin, especially, you know the the struggle after that part three climax. Hmm. Um, I think it would have denatured the power of Kolinar had Kaladin then just turned around and in part four sworn an, an ideal really um yeah i i think the events in colonar with with moash and elokar were so powerful and in how they affect kaladin he needs more than just you know a hundred pages to get over that okay oh okay yeah no you're, you're definitely right I actually agree with you at the, at that very last point. I was agreeing with you for for most of what you just said. Um, I just I feel like if Kaladin had sworn his ideal in Kolinar, it may have, for me, felt like Kolinar was a little more Ooh. worth it. I don't feel like it was a waste of time, but <clears throat> very very obviously, you know, for all the characters involved, it was a failure. But you have to take that failure and you have to put it into context. And for Kaladin's character, specifically with Kaladin I'm speaking right now, it is appropriate. He needs 
and I agree with Drew on this, he needs a failure. It, as much as I hate to say it, because I love this character so much, for him to progress, he can't just keep winning at the end or even in the middle of every climax. There needs to be a point where he has to, you know, I want to say he has to suffer, but there has to be something for him to overcome, and it's hard for him to overcome something if you're always expecting him to win, right? Yeah. So with, with Kaladin here, I really, really, really appreciated how, and this isn't hindsight, because at the moment I wanted him to succeed, but in hindsight, after, after having read it a few times, I really appreciate how finally Kaladin gets, you know, he, he has this, uh, I hesitate to say this, sidecar role, but I think it's all wrapped up, it's summed up perfectly in what Syl says to him in one of these very, very critical moments, just as Dalinar does unite the realms, and she tells him, maybe it's time somebody saved you. That line right there earned all of the um, the pent-up energy I had expecting Kaladin to succeed, you know? The fact that he failed here was still justified by that. You know what? Maybe it is time that somebody saved him. I actually really, really liked that. I wasn't expecting it, but I was very, very pleased in how it turned out. I appreciated that. Um, this I don't want to get, like, off of Kaladin, um, sure. but it really plays into this theme that we see with Dalinar, right, that we come to with the the, the most important step is the next step. Mm. And we've seen you know, Dalinar's story has been, like, the story of, like, of failure of, of doing things wrong right and he's trying mm -hmm. to fix it and he's trying to learn how to take the next step in the right direction and in the end Dalinar is able to really step forward and and save the day right and because that that's Dalinar's story here it's it's a great opportunity to let these other characters not have to not have to be that mm. um and um i i have to agree that i'm really glad we got to see kaladin fail and really just truly fail like he, he just he hits a yeah, wall yeah. and and that's it like that's that's the end of that story you know he they come through and he gets to fight amaram and there's a little bit of a, a conclusion there you know but even even with amaram he doesn't win without the help of his friends yep. um and um it's 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 a bittersweet ending for kaladin but it's a lesson that he needed to learn um it's something he needed to experience yeah. and it's something that we as the readers needed to um, to experience, yeah, I think, to really appreciate him. Something that, exactly, as you just said, it's something that's meant to be appreciated more than it is meant to be enjoyed. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Oh, uh, I, and my, my, my last point about Kaladin here is just that uh, I felt a little irritated by the fact that his, finally we get to the point where he gets to duel Amaram. But unfortunately, there's so much more going on around them and so much more going on with Amram and, and Yelignar that I was like, oh, I, I just felt like the fact that Amram swallowed that sphere and Yelignar started to transform him and Kaladin had to, to, to duel against the unmade as well as Amram. I felt like Kaladin was kind of cheated out of the honest 1v1 that he deserved against Amram. It just, it felt like what... Kaladin's personal bit that he had against Amram was kind of just, you know, tied up with this worldwide thing. I just, I wanted to see Kaladin get this honest confrontation rather than than this, you know, climax. See, I like, um, 
Brandon did something really clever with that duel here between Calden and Amaram, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think it's reflective of the edit he made to Words of Radiance with Zeth, where he he couldn't let Kaladin kill Zeth because of Kaladin's oaths as a Windrunner, right? And here, Kaladin is fighting Amaram to protect Dalinar, but as soon as the duel becomes less about protecting Dalinar and more about fighting Amaram for vengeance, Kaladin starts losing and has to let other people come in and protect him from Amaram. And that's when Amaram is defeated. I don't like that, though. I just, I just, like, again, I, I, sorry, I shouldn't say I don't like that. I agree with that. <laughs> but I don't like the fact that their final confrontation was, so, was, was as it, how, like, it turned out to be. With, with Amaram having all of these mystical powers and being able to spout all these things back at Kaladin and, and and really shake his mind in the middle of their fight. I just, I really, really wanted as a Kaladin fan to see Kaladin get to honestly do this. It might, it might not have been the best for him. I don't know, but it, I was just, uh, It would not just, have been at all. I just, I, for example... In Words of Radiance, at the very end of Part 3, when Kaladin got to say, And for my boon, I demand a yeah. challenge with Amram. And I was like, yes! Even though I was mad as hell at Kaladin in that moment for, for choosing this moment to do that, I was like, yes! He deserves this! If you would have asked me what I wanted to happen between Kaladin and Amram, I would definitely not have ever envisioned, oh yeah, but Amram has one of the inmate inside of him, and they're just doing this over a much larger struggle. I wanted it to be a personal struggle more than a worldwide struggle. And for me, this was, it felt like their personal, um, their, their, their personal conflict was just thrown into the wind so that, that there could be a worldwide conflict, a world building conflict with one of the unmade. And I was like, ah, I just wanted Kaladin to have that moment of righteous victory over Amram, not yelling. Not. <laughs> I, it's it's hard for me to to untangle this from my opinions about Amaram specifically. Um, I I sort of agree. I I think the thing that bothers me about it for Kaladin is the fact that Amaram is no longer himself at a certain point there. Yes. And so it, it it just you just kind of lose the 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 fact that if Kaladin's narrative is kind of about coming back and confronting this man, like with Rashon, he got to go back and confront Rashon and, and we were able to deal with that. And he punches him in the face and he decides, Hey, you know, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Like we could have had that with Amram on a, on a bigger scale, maybe a more violent, bloody scale. Right. But there, you, you could have that point. I think that Drew's making without Amram ceasing to, to actually be himself anymore. Cause he really kills himself. It, it, my my main issue is with Amram himself. I I was always really frustrated that Brandon did that to Amram because I thought he was such a fascinating character. This yep. like religious religious zealot um, who he has this kind of same philosophy that Taravangian does of you know um, willing to do dirty things if it's if you know if the ends justify the means. I I thought he was a really interesting character, and so it was kind of sad to me that he just sort of oh somewhere along the way he just decided this sucks, never mind, I'm going to join Odium. Um, without without that really being on screen or um, 
getting to experience that. And then when he, and then you get to Kaladin and he's just like not, yeah. he's just not the person he was when you last saw him. Um, that was frustrating to me. Yeah, for me it was the personal conflict thrown out in favor of the the world building conflict, and I was like, oh man. I, I'm I'm fascinated by this because Rob was so unhappy with the Rashon confrontation in part one. Was I saying that it was <laughs> fan servicey? But now you're saying you wanted the confrontation, the fan servicey confrontation with Amaram. <laughs> no winning with this guy. Did I say that in part one that the the, the oh, punch yeah. to, to oh, his yeah. face was fan servicey? Oh yeah. I don't recall yeah, you, that. You want quite I, a rant I, I, about I recall it, bitching about Laryl and not <laughs> buying for a second that Kaladin would have completely forgotten that Laryl existed. I don't recall yeah. saying. We, yeah, that his we punch we had a whole re- conversation about like Kaladin's return to Hearthstone and how Kaladin was just like casually dodging. Oh, like, that part. Like, like no, sorry, that, that was and... like that. Just almost felt like masturbatory on Kaladin's part, where he's just like, oh, "I'm so powerful, I don't yeah, have to deal with anything." But that's what it would have been had it just been like Windrunner third ideal Kaladin versus normal ass. No, no, no. Amaran. Not if Kaladin decides not to use Stormlight. Not if he uses a regular sword or a dagger or a spear, a regular <laughs> spear without Stormlight. That feels like. Center to Kaladin's character. They're, they're I don't on a battlefield. Need... He's going to be using Stormlight and a shard blade. Like... He doesn't need to. <laughs> he could just pick up a spear. He could face Amram with a but spear that's... and be an honest man-to-man confrontation. And with Sill on the outside being very concerned that he's not drawing in Stormlight. Like I can see this whole scene turning out very differently and very personally. You know, and the fact that so much of that personal aspect was dismissed in favor of this 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 whole. Battle of Thalen Field and the unmade influence, they having to X out one of the unmade even though they're involved here. I don't know. It just it felt like too much was crammed into too little and some things were sacrificed. I I disagree, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, do, do we have any more about Kaladin? Nothing here? more about Kaladin. In fact, I had nothing written about Kaladin right here. I just riffed this entire oh. time in case it wasn't obvious. <laughs> I, I had a comment about his... Um the flashbacks that Kaladin has in this, in this, uh, in part four mm-hmm. are really interesting to me. Um, there's good <laughs> and bad. There's good and bad. On one hand, I think it's really cool that Brandon did that. These like little mini bite sized flashbacks, you know, they, they last like what, like a, maybe two pages or something each. Um, yeah. I thought that was really cool. I'd love to see more of those for either for him or for other characters. Um, that said, I felt like they didn't have a lot of cohesion to them. And that was, frustrating to me that there wasn't like a I didn't necessarily always see a point to them other than like uh, Jack Kaladin I guess is just being very introspective and thinking about his his life they felt to me more like Brandon wanted to drive home current Kaladin's like fragile mental state after Mm -hmm. Kolinar and was like oh I could I could have these flashbacks and it almost makes me wonder if when he started plotting uh the way of kings that Terra didn't exist because it it seems strange to me that kaladin has all of these flashbacks mm-hmm. in the way of kings and never mentions Terra. and then oh, he did he does mention her name yeah what would have happened to him if, if he Terra does had in way of kings? out of his single-minded yeah no he, he mentions yeah, her in there's, it's like a single line it's there's a like single a single line. line yeah like and all the and I all the people and he's like he's like listing all the people he's failed, and he's like, oh, and Tara, but he failed her in a different way. It was he was talking and about that's, Moash that's at this it. point. He was like admiring Moash's like drive to learn the spear, 
and he was like, would this be what Kaladin had turned out to be if Terra hadn't coaxed him out of his single-minded devotion to... It was something like that, but she was oh, mentioned right. only once very, very passively. There's, I, think there's, I think there's two mentions. Oh? I, I, yeah, actually, I was thinking two. of a different one. Yeah. Oh, I would defer to, to, to Josh so, on this. Yeah. He knows more than I. Yeah, I let Tien die. I failed my spearmen, the slaves I tried to rescue, Terra, and then he trails off. And then the other one is the one Rob was talking about. What would have happened to him if Terra hadn't coaxed, coaxed him out of his single-minded dedication? Dedication, Would he yeah. have burned himself out as she'd claimed? Oh, okay. I totally retract yeah. everything I just said. I she, did not remember that at all. <laughs> she, <laughs> I love that we could do that on this podcast. Oh, damn it. I went way too far in the wrong direction. It's like, yep. Guide I'm, me I'm back, wrong. gentlemen. You could just edit that out and make me look better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are we paying um, for, right? Oh, I'm not the one who does the censor lists, unfortunately. That's me and Pat. <laughs> Mostly Pat. Just me listening to it, Pat editing it. Yep. I do love that. obscure stuff like that where you're just like a little like a name seated in somewhere and they yeah 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 okay well well but I still think as far as the flashbacks go here they are much more in service to just like building depth to Kaladin's post colonar depression mm-hmm. you know sure um sure. like they inform his current mental state rather than forming any kind of coherent narrative of their own which is a little frustrating um i'm sure i'm not alone among the fandom in wanting to know more about like how did how did terra happen you know what what's what happened there you know how did they meet how did they recognize their attraction to each other and i'm also a big fan of josh's terra theory Oh uh, yeah, about the uh, the bar the the bar patron in Uruthiri. Yep, so. yep. I was listening to the, the the pre and doing the censor list for that episode, and I was like, you know what? I'm so so much on board with this. <laughs> and listening to my own voice in that episode, going, eh, it may be a coincidence. I'm sitting there welding. And I'm just like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. He's so right. When I have time to actually have that remove and listen to what Josh is saying, yeah, and man. yeah, rereading it's... that one scene where where Kaladin mentions her per- peculiar clothing yeah. style, I was like, oh my gosh, like that. Yeah, that it has it's to bizarre be. because she. I mean, you, there's two obscure references to her in Wave Kings. There might be one in Words of Radiance. I don't remember. Just, she's just a really obscure character, yep. and so yeah. it's just a really amusing to me that Brandon seems yep. to have done that and when you have been reading brandon sanderson for so long coincidences are far and few in between i don't know yeah she's uh, mentioned twice in words of radiance as well what yeah they're both um, they're, it's similar like very short brief mentions that i'm sure yeah uh when kaladin is talking with adeline uh about like mm-hmm. dealing with women and and he and Adeline's talking about Shalani. He's like, I really want to keep this one. And Kaladin goes, So tell her that maybe. Kaladin said, thinking oh. back to Terra and the thinking mistakes he'd Tara, made. Thinking back to Terra, yep. And then there's another All one the mistakes he'd later made, right? uh, with Shalon when they're in in their you know having their moment in the chasms and with his hands around her waist, hers around him. It was as close as he'd held a woman to since Terra. Yeah, okay. since Terra. Yeah, okay. I, I like yeah. I I just needed a little bit of a of a jog <laughs> there, but. Very, very well uh, seated. Damn it, Brandon. We'll, we'll see what happens to <laughs> Damn him. Damn it, Brandon. You are far too competent. Oh, I'm going to anyway. be uh, 
Yeah. yeah. I'm ready for to to talk about Shalon. Yeah, I don't have a ton about Shalon, but but uh, let's let's dive into her here. I have some bitching I, to get out of the way, as I usually <laughs> do when we reach Shalon. I do think most of the important Shalon stuff in this book happened in part three. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Um, to me, the most important thing in parts four and five for her was her decision to say, you know, like, no, I'm being stupid. It's Adeline, you know. Um, um, yeah. And... Uh, uh, I don't know. I've I've talked about this in the past that I don't really feel like there's a love triangle in this book. Um, it's it's too like internal for for each of them. The only one who ever makes it external is Adeline. Right at the end of this book, when he like tells Shalon, he's like, "I see the way you look at him. Go like fine. I'll step away. You can go." And she's like, "No, you're an idiot." <laughs> no, no, I disagree with that. Um, There's a part in part four when when we're in Kaladin or in Kaladin in Adeline's point of view, and he's watching Shalon watch Kaladin at the front of the ship as all the windsprint appear around him and she turns yeah. into Vale and she starts to leer at him and Adeline's like oh my god what chance does a guy I think he even says that to Pattern what chance does a guy have against that I mean I would say that's also external even though Shallan's not really involved in that exchange no like when when I consider love triangles in in other series it's way more like, overblown sure yeah like yeah it's it, this is such a like a minor plot point in this book in the scheme of Oathbringer that like to me it just never felt like an issue yeah um and and it was always a foregone conclusion to me like even when Adeline tried to say I I knew she was gonna like she had already made her mind up you know yeah um and so I. Uh, I mean, I liked it. I'm glad that he didn't go full-blown love triangle with it because yeah. this series doesn't need that. Um, but I, I do like what it meant for... Like, it, it was basically a sub-aspect of Shallan's, um mental fracturing throughout this book. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a signifier for the greater internal conflict that she has. And we at least get a little bit of a a conclusion to that here, but we know going forward, she still has these issues. You know, she still has Veil and Radiant. And at the end of this book, she just says, you know, like, it's just us three for now. I've put a, a hold on further splintering of myself. Because we saw some weird stuff going on in part three. When, like, like yeah. in in text, the the names used, like when she's talking... We get many different uh, names for her. Yeah. Um, like when she adopts a light weaving persona, she fully becomes that person. Mm -hmm. um, in part three, whereas before and after that, she doesn't become that other person when she puts on the light weaving. So yeah. we see that there's at least some progression in her conflict. With 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 this love triangle to me it didn't feel like something that needed to be explored so much as something that just needed to be at least addressed. I mean Sanderson mm -hmm. knew that there were many many characters who were reading into this who were shipping if to, to use that term shipping Shallan and Kaladin 
And even though it wasn't in the cards and it wasn't in his future plan, I can I can I can picture you know Sanderson sitting down and thinking, well, there's so many people like like reading into this. I at least have to address it, and I think he addressed it in the right way. He he contextualized it in Kaladin's point of view and Shallan's point of view, and separately they arrived at uh, a decision that no, this is not really something that we're going to pursue. And I like the fact yeah. that it was arrived separately. They didn't talk about it. Each of them, for their own reasons, decided that, no, this was not the path I wanted to tread. Um, but it at least has to be addressed. It has to, That question has to come into the page to put to rest those, um, those, those ideas so that more room can be made for exploring other options, you know? Yeah, that's right. That- that's all very like Cowden and Shallan focused. I like what it does for Adolin uh, because we see in he, I think he has an interesting storyline that goes across parts four and five. Maybe it even has like has roots back into further into, in the earlier parts, but you have the storyline of, of Adolin one Elicar dies and all of a sudden he's going to be like, he's supposed to be King and he, he doesn't really know that he wants to live up to that. Um, and then you get to the Battle of Thalen Field at the end, and he feels like he's this like normal guy in this world of, of superheroes. And how does he compete? Like, how does he like be helpful in any way in the middle of all of that? And I, I thought that that was one more thing that added to it was his feeling of inferiority to, just to Kaladin within that romantic relationship. That just one more, um, I don't know, one more log on the fire of him just like feeling small and inadequate um so i i like that brandon used it for him as well hmm. um yeah. it's totally off topic for shallan but still though i mean and and staying on shallan sort of not not really changing the subject we're still we're still involved with this you know love triangle if that's what you want to call it i will say that in this part shallan continued to irritate me as a reader <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I'm losing all of the remaining patience that I had for her switching of personalities and her constant shifting between, like, the shifting of burden between them. I mean, let, 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 let's perform a quick thought experiment, okay? I'm going to read something that happens here, and I want you to, to imagine it really, really happening, okay? So there's this conversation in, in chapter 108 in Honor's Path. Shallan sees Kaladin at the front of the ship, as I was just talking about. Adolin thinks, just ahead of him, or you know what? Let 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 us switch the names here. Let's let's pretend this was Adolin doing this instead of Shallan. Okay, Adolin seemed to change. It was in his bearing, the way he stopped restly, uh, resting lightly on one foot and stood solidly on two feet and said, the way his posture shifted and the way that he seemed to melt on seeing Vivenna, lips rising into a grin. Blushing, he adopted a fond, even eager expression. At this point, you're thinking, oh my god, Adolin, your betrothed is literally right next to you. Calm down. But I suppose when it's Shallan, we just give her a pass? No, not at all. Like, but she's super creepy. Yeah, but, but like, you know, with, with Shallan, people, you know, she's just, oh, she's emotionally traumatized. She's splintering into alternate personalities. Like, I, I don't know. I just can't imagine a scenario where these roles are reversed and 90% of the fandom doesn't go, what the f***, Adolin? With Shallan here, she's just 
so careless about this relationship with Adeline. She's literally at this point where she can't resist. She physically cannot resist leering at Kaladin. Yet there have been several times in the past where Shallan is talking to Adeline about his previous relationships and his reputation for being a womanizer. I just, I can't stand the hypocrisy here. Yeah, I'm not defending her at all. Yeah, like, I've never been a fan of, of suffering through Shallan's constantly switching personalities as she continues to run away from every f***ing problem she has. And seeing it now, hurting Adolin, like it does, it just makes me hate Shallan even more. Especially I can't find a reason Adeline to excuse is, her. is the best. Adolin is just absolutely wonderful. That's Adeline's the reason... Awesome! That's the reason I have a... That's the reason I have a hard time being like frustrated with her is because of the way that Adolin responds to it because it, because he's the one who's who's um who's most who should be most offended by it like yeah. he's the one that she's sinning against right so um the fact that he's able to forgive her for it kind of makes me feel like it's not like I'm it's not my place to be mad at her no, for it no that makes I me guess. think oh man Shalon you don't deserve him <laughs> Uh, that's, I mean, that's a little Nobody bit true. deserves him. <laughs> yeah. Okay, He's fair. The best. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> he might I... be the most, like, genuinely good character Brandon has ever written. Yes! Yes! Even, yes! Be, like, she's right next to her betrothed, and she's leering at another man. But it's like... I, I can't find anything to excuse that. that. That that doesn't sound trite, you know. Oh, she's damaged. She's trying to find her way. But that explanation would not swing if it was Adolin doing that. If Adolin was, I, I, was leering at another woman, like, again, the only one nearby that would have, you know, even remotely been likely would have been Vivenna. And if, if that had no, been Adolin... Leering at Vivenna, you would have been like trying to defend her at all. Like I, I'm not I saying no, no. I know you guys upset, aren't. I'm, but... I'm sorry. I'm not arguing <laughs> you guys. I'm arguing at all the comments I'm going to get saying, "Oh, Rob just doesn't understand Shalon. He's not cutting you <laughs> off." I don't think any. I don't think anybody's trying to defend her. Like this scene is one of those points that's there to show you how bad she's getting. This is not a good thing. It's not. It's not shown as like, oh, this is just character development. It's like, no, this is a problem. I just this is something for, that people would hate Adolin for, but something that people are just like, oh, this is just you know something Shalon's struggling with. It just, I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. So I have one last Shalon point. Okay, go ahead. I'm just and, gonna. And I want opinions. I want opinions. Um, Battle of Phelan uh, Field. I almost just said Phelan Field again. Oh my gosh. Um really failing yeah yeah say that three times fast um yasna's point of view she's going out onto the field into shallan's you know light weaving army and she talks to shallan and radiant responds from over there and and radiant is the real shallan i've seen a lot of you know theories that this means that shallan is of the fourth you know, ideal, and she has her shard plate um, because she was radiant. But I, I don't buy that um, for a couple of reasons. One, Yasna is the one who goes out of her way earlier in the book to like remark to Shalon um, about her shard plate. When Shalon's like, "I'm a, I'm a knight radiant now," and and she's like, "Oh, you're a full radiant. Where's your shard plate?" You know, 
And now we're in Yasna's point of view. And in the description, it's Radiant who is Shallan, but she's not described as wearing plate. And Yasna doesn't remark, oh, good for you, you got your plate, or anything like that. Or even, oh, you were hiding this from me. Or, you know, there's there's nothing about her plate. And and so I see that as, like, um, uh, I, I don't see it as proof that Shallan had previously, like, gotten to her fourth ideal, gotten her plate before, you know before this book um although i know that's a common theory on the forums uh she the plate thing is there's a there's a previous um like i think it's like one or two povs before where radiant is mentioned she's wearing plate there and so people just assume that it's people assume that it's still there um yeah that's um and, and i know that because i've spend enough times arguing with people because yeah. I don't really like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I understand it. I get it. The, the reason that people believe that. And there's others, some other evidence and some wobs that support her being at that. Far yeah. Along. There was the I've just, one, the one word of Brandon that she's like one ideal past Kaladin. Yeah. So I, I get it. Um, like if you're, and especially if you're looking for like evidence, like it, I can see why mm-hmm. you take it that way. I, I've just always been skeptical, so I don't know. We'll have to. I'll have to wait and see. Personally, I mean, what, uh, the 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 plate doesn't necessarily have to arrive at the same step. I mean, we've seen also true. Dalinar start to manifest plate before that ideal. We've seen Kaladin start to manifest that plate before that ideal in small ways. You know, I think it's just it has a lot to do with um, desperation, with intent, and with the spren involved. I mean, there's a formal step yeah. at which it's supposed to occur, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be concrete. We, we also don't know that um, Radiants all earn their shard blades and shard plate at the same tier, yes. at the same level every We time. don't know that. Okay, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that we don't know that. Yeah. Uh, well, there's at least reason to believe because of this book that skybreakers have a different progression than other orders. Certainly they don't like really bond their spren when when windrunners do. Cuz it's like only after right, Zeth right. has his whole, you know, that like one of the high spren picks him. Yeah, I think it's like Zeth's third ideal that he actually bonds the spren yeah. and he still yeah. doesn't know its freaking name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and and at least as far as we know the at at his third ideal he doesn't get a shard blade with yep. it. So, now hmm. to be fair, <laughs> uh yeah. to be fair. I put that on Nightblood. It, yeah. <laughs> it could very well be that high spread is just like, yeah, no, I, you could you could do that, but I ain't going anywhere near that thing. <laughs> Yeah, you're doing yeah. great on your own. Yeah. <laughs> my my last point about Shallan before we continue is just this last line of hers. This very last scene of hers after her siblings are given back to her as a wedding gift by Marais. She she has this introspective moment where she realizes it's okay to celebrate and it's okay to feel good and it's okay to deserve something good. 
but that last line is something that made that pissed me off so much. She headed toward her wedding, toward a celebration of being herself. I will repeat those last three words of being herself. Uh huh. Sure. Okay. okay. That is that is a line that uh, I I had a similar reaction to. Mm-hmm. I think that w- it pulled me directly out of the story. That was a line that I could just feel the writer in. Mm-hmm. It was Brandon at the end of this massive, ridiculous book, being like, "I want some really." powerful, you know, feel-good lines to write at the end of it. And even though that line does not at all jive with where she ends this book at in her internal state, yep. it feels good. It feels good. I guess one could argue that this is her trying to appreciate that small part of herself amongst the chaos. Yeah. It, it, but yeah, and and there there is something to be said like you can massage it to make it fit. Like, oh, this is yet another indication that she is still lying to herself or that this is her clinging to the the little bit of herself that's still real or or something like that. But it does feel like a it does feel like Brandon Sanderson sat down in front of the computer and finished writing that chapter and was like, you know what? Yeah, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah. 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 And even like going into at this point, like, like coming out of it and thinking, oh, what am I going to see in Rhythm of War when I finish this book? I'm like, this is just going to be more of it. There's going to be more personalities. I just I didn't buy this for one second. A celebration of being herself. I was like, nope, nope. I highly doubt that that's coming already. It feels way too early and premature for that. Okay, uh, I guess I have one more. It's not really a talking point oh? for me, but a question for you guys. Uh, major fandom complaint after Earthbringer came out was that we didn't get to see the wedding. Did you guys care at all? Nope. <laughs> um, Could this be because I would have enjoyed it if I just because it would have been more to read, but. Um... I don't feel like I missed. You know something. what? If yeah, you know so. what, I bet Sanderson could have woven something really, really dark and mysterious and interesting in there. Like if there's a chance <laughs> encounter during this wedding amongst all of the the celebration Shalom. and the purity, to have this little like Marais has a little message for her or some character pops in at this point. I can see Brandon using that to to, to insert something contextuously or contextually terrifying. But as itself, do I care oh. to see them get married? I mean. I trust it to happen off screen. I'm happy for them. I don't need to watch I, it. I'm so glad you just said that because the in my mind, the scene that I would have wanted to see if he wrote the wedding would have been Shalon and Adeline, you know, up on whatever altar or at the front of the room or whatever they, you know, the, the Vorans do. Uh-oh. And, and Shalon turns and, like, glances into the crowd, smiling at her brothers, and Marais is standing right behind him, Ooh. and just slowly smiles, oh. and you're like, oh! That is, that is devious. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Drew McCaffrey, that's the writer inside of you looking for that. that I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, honestly, I think the... I recall, um, like, kind of wanting to see the wedding more 
for anything just because I was really curious to see what like a normal Voren wedding looked like. Because, okay, yeah, that's fair. Uh, Dalinar and Navani <laughs> yeah. was kind of a, not a normal yeah, situation. That's, that's anything, <laughs> I just was kind of like, I wonder what it would have been like to, yeah. I don't know. If there's I, a I conventional Voren to wedding to have, yeah, Dalinar and Navani's was not that. <laughs> yeah, most Voren couples are not married by the Stormfather. <laughs> yeah, you know, the spren that represents the Almighty or men's, or you know, men's memory of him. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm ready to go on with, I mean, Dalinar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we got Dalinar. Um, do we want to do Zeth real quick before Dalinar? Oh, damn. I didn't write down anything about Zeth, but I'll riff off what you got. Okay. Uh, well, I. this is another reason I love Part 4. Even though we don't get much Zeth, we do get some, and we get Skybreakers. Mm. I love the Skybreakers. <laughs> I don't love Nail's version of the Skybreakers, but I love the idea of them. And uh, and so seeing Zeth training with them, but also personifying a more pure version of the Skybreakers in parts four and five um, is a ton of fun for me. Uh, and I I just greatly enjoy his interaction with Nightblood. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of interactions with Nightblood, I will say that I really, really liked and paid a lot of attention to Lyft's interactions with Nightblood. And with, <laughs> yeah, with yeah. Lyft, you can talk in context with Sazed. What the f*** am I saying, Sazed? Can you tell I was just listening to Hero of Ages? With, with Zeth and, and their interactions. This whole Zeth, Nightblood, Lyft triangle, for lack of a better word. I was definitely paying a lot more attention to it on this reread. I think there's a lot of future going forward with the three of them and how they interact with one another and their relationships, their interpersonal relationships. But with Zeth himself, I don't know. To me, his whole training sequence with Nail and the Skybreakers, it felt a little out of place. I loved the trials that he went through, particularly the one where he was uh, in the Pure... I think it was the Pure Lake and he was hunting yeah, the criminals. Yeah, the escaped convicts, yeah. Yeah, and how Great. he chose to mm. observe a little deeper than the other... Uh, Skybreakers did, at least a little past face value. Um, but then again, the vast majority of what I really enjoyed about Zeth was during the climax. So, like, oh, I mean, see, Zeth I to me all. is one of these, <laughs> he's one of these ultimate power cards that he's just, there's so much spectacle and badass about him. It's, it's, he's so grand in scope, it's hard to zoom in on a particular detail. You know? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna zoom in on a particular detail. Let's real hear quick, it then. And I have two questions that go along with it. Mm. I'm gonna read a little quote here. <laughs> okay. I knew a voice like yours once, Sword Mimi. <laughs> the whispers? No, a single one in my mind when I was young. So, wait a second. What, what order? Wait, hold on. Zeth, I... What order of Night Radiant was Zeth? And is he still bonded with that sprint? Where did he say this? No. Uh, on page 876. What chapter? Uh, what was it called? Contents. I do not remember this detail, and I am nursing a semi. Uh, so, eight. It would have been in chapter 92 Water Warm as Blood. Oh, so it was I, during the Pure Lake. Oh, uh, uh, was the it during the uh, convict? Yes. Okay, all right. 
I do not yep. remember that detail at all, and my mind has been blown. <laughs> and he does follow it up by saying, I hope things go better this time. And that's why I ask, is he still bonded with that sprint, or is there a Deadeye out there somewhere that he broke a bond with? If Drew hadn't told me that, and I had read this moment and, and discovered it organically... It would have been a lot like for those who have seen Friends, the sitcom, that moment with Joey in the red sweater when he stops and he opens his eyes super wide at that revelation. <laughs> that would have been me in that moment if Drew hadn't just... Uh, that, that, you just... Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. Good call. Very good call. Yeah, I, I don't think that he's still bonded to one. That seems a little bit yeah, I mean, me too. But hard to believe to me, but um, I also don't. Does it I even have to be a spren? Like what? Like like like? Oh, it's how for wide sure are the Cosmere possibilities? No, it's for sure a spren. Yeah, for sure a spren. Yeah, because the whole the whole reason he was made truthless was because he said the Knights Radiant were coming back. Clearly. Oh. Oh, okay. He knew they were coming back because yeah, okay. he was one. <laughs> I forgot the reason he was named Truthless. I don't know. I still think there's a little something more. Com- it's a little more complex than that. But yeah, that's a very Seven damn. That's a good point. Yeah, um, because man, what like he's already got night blood and a high spren. How insane would it be if he was like also a truth watcher <laughs> or something? But or a or a stone. Why would he just like... at that point accept <laughs> truthlessness? If well, he had a freaking uh, sprint. That's a great question that I'm sure we're going to figure out in book five. Okay. <laughs> Zeth flashbacks are going to be insane. Yeah. So, oh, I yeah. cannot wait. Cannot Four wait. goddamn books I've been waiting to see the shamanit. <laughs> oh, I've it been waiting. Me. I, I, will, I will honestly say, like, I love Oathbringer. I think it's one of the best books Brandon Sanderson has written. I think it's legitimately one of the best fantasy novels of the last 30, 40 years. Agreed. Um, but it killed me when he announced, oh no, I'm not doing Zeth flashbacks anymore in this one. I'm doing Dalinar and we're going to move Zeth to book five. <laughs> I was like, you can't do this to me, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 What, oh, one of my predictions at the end of Words of Radiance going into Oathbringer was we see Zeth you know, facing the shamanit, or the shamanit show up, and there's a huge, huge showdown. And then going into Rhythm of War, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, God, we have to have... Uh, we, it, this is the book where we see the yeah. shamanit. Uh, well, so when I remember vividly reading Oathbringer the first time, when we find out that the Honor Blade was stolen, my first... Like, my mind immediately jumped to, oh, the stone shamans are back. They're here to collect Zeth's honor. Right, right. And then, of course, immediately that was, you know, shown that that was not the case. But, like, but I, and then I left Oathbringer and I was like, all right, where are they? Mm. Where are the stone shamans? Zeth talks about how, like, when, now, now it could be they don't know he lost the honor blade because Nail saved him. He died and was mm-hmm. brought back, you know. And so to the stone shamans, like, oh, he's still active and out and about. He's just serving somebody new now, so he still has the honor blade. They may not know that he lost it, especially because Dalinar was keeping it a secret, you know, like having the yeah, yeah, yeah. He was hiding. You know. it. But but now that 
you know, we'll we'll have to see going forward now that uh, Moash is given, Vire is given the Honor Blade at the end of Oathbringer, like, what kind of intelligence did the Shin have in Kolinar, where we suddenly have this human not-slave flying around a bunch with an Honor Blade that, you know... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. They'd have to see it, I, I assume, to recognize it, but yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing how this gets uh, explored in the future, and and, I, I and will, our discussions about it. I will circle back to your original point about. Um, I really enjoyed uh, seeing Zeth. I really enjoyed all the Skybreaker stuff. I don't know that I ever felt like I got like a more pure like vision of what they could be because Zeth himself is so messed up and I just like find myself like terrified not knowing what to think about these people because Zeth is crazy they're all crazy like um it's so interesting to me that they like do this whole like test with like the loopholes and it's like oh yeah you found this great loophole like that's this is the point of the test like this is great and I'm just like no like this uh, maybe it's just because I'm not a skybreaker but I'm just kind of like that's this is this is fantastic that you found this loophole but I do not want somebody who's like, uh, you know, running my legal system to be like looking for like loopholes <laughs> to, yeah. to uh, accomplish what they're trying to do. Like, I was yeah, just terrifying. Well, I think that was like, to me, I saw that as a, a signifier of just how messed up nails skybreakers yeah. have become. That's and, what I hope it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause they're real screwed up. <laughs> uh, and as a skybreaker myself, um, mm. <laughs> uh, I hope that we get to see um, a different a different path forward with Zeth, and maybe we get some independent skybreakers, uh, you know, going forward. That not every new skybreaker is just automatically in Nail's organization, and as of the end of Oathbringer, aligned with Odium. <laughs> and and the singers so it's interesting because it uh, you you can see it in earlier in oathbringer with the the honor spren right or kind of um uh, you know a whole bunch whole group of them all show up right it's this kind of like agreement that this like group of honor spren decided hey these humans are maybe worth bonding so let's go let's go bond them and we get to shadesmar and we see that they have these whole societies and they're just they're people and Um, and so it's interesting to see the high sprint from that perspective to realize that, um, they're not just like these like high sprint that are out there floating around until they bump into somebody who might be a good high, a good skybreaker. And then I guess I'll bond this guy, right? Like they're on the other side, they're in Shadesmar, they've got a society of some kind and they're deciding as a group to support what the skybreakers are doing. Um, so really you need to have kind of an independent one. You need, you know, somebody like a, a a timbre or, um, a sill who, you know, runs off and bonds somebody against the, the rest of what her people agree with. Yeah. It goes to, it goes to show more the personality of, of the Nahal spren. Like, like even take Malata and her spren, you know, uh, 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 spark the Like, I mean, they are aligned with, the diagram, which at the yeah. end of the book aligns with Odium as well. Like, there, there's more oh. to the personality of each than there are just, like, basic ideals. The Spren are still people, in a way. Yeah, they are. And yeah. as it's... people, they can interpret things and they can make their own decisions in a way that we can't expect, no matter how human we try to be. 
and it's it's also interesting to remember that the high sprin at least some of the high sprin were alive yes all the way back to the recreants yeah. yes none of the other sprin orders have that that memory of, of yeah. what things were like before so it's it, i'd be really curious to find out how much of that is informing their decision mm-hmm. to did we stick learn with that Nail. in this book yeah because yeah because nail nail talks about how the skybreakers never broke their bonds okay Okay. Um, that they they went into hiding, and and I think we have we have the quote from Ivory earlier in this book as well, talking with Yasna. How nine of the orders? What was the quote? Not nine of them died, and one lived on in death, or something like that. Oh, okay. I I need to. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um. I think there's something in the diagram, epigraphs about it too. Yeah, yeah. But about, um, uh, one is certainly betrayal to the others, or something like that. Well, also. Well, that, no, that could be. Uh, wait, no. wait, wait. That was not. Wasn't that? Uh, well, that is up to a lot of interpretation. Yeah. That is a because because they're like the epigraphs before and after yeah. that. One of them, I think it's the one before, is about the knights radiant, and the one after is about the unmade. So it's like. Yeah. Is this referring to the Knights Radiant, or is it like a new bit referring to the Unmade, or is it just both <laughs> by itself, and it's right. referring to something else? Because yeah, we that's have, a good point. We have a lot of options. <laughs> mm, yeah, um, um, I'm done yeah. with my points there. But okay. Zeth, right? Yeah. Zeth. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So let's let's do Dalinar since yep. we're moving in on like yeah we're we're at like an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And we would like to keep this under three hours. <laughs> <laughs> like is becoming more and more likely, yeah. I mean, we we went over three with Words of Radiance parts four and five, and, and then I was looking at our schedule and I was like, oh my gosh, we gotta do Oathbringer four and five in one episode too? Oh mm-hmm. no. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so going forward with Dalinar. Um, I mean, so... Yeah, <laughs> that exhalation from Drew McCaffrey right there sums up, for the most part, everything I'm feeling viscerally about this. There's so much win. I struggled to find where to start with this. He he goes through so much in this section. We knew it was coming. We hoped it was coming, and now it's here. And he, I'm I'm glad that he doesn't do quite everything right. I recall being particularly annoyed when, he, like, with how he treats Amram at times. Even though I, I know that sounds odd, I don't want anyone to think I'm feeling bad for Amram. But Amram raises a very few salient points during his conversation with Dalinar in the chapter called Aela Steely. You know, the men in his army, which is Sadius's army, they they do very clearly feel disgruntled, and yeah being forced to do that kind of menial labor for another nation while others of their countrymen get to liberate their homeland, that would probably sting quite a bit. And he's also right, he still being Amaram, those men honestly think Dalinar killed their high prince. And then Dalinar, in this moment, still has the nerve to withhold this vital little bit of intel that Thalen City is going to be the center of this confrontation with Odium. He just thinks about it and... You know, it just lets it slide by. Let's, he just intentionally says nothing. As some sort of, like, it's like a petty little just jab at him. And again, not to excuse or, or soften on Amram at all. He's a piece of shit. But I, I can see why 
at the end here, he resents Dalinar in the way he does in this book. Dalinar is not scarce on giving him reasons to. Yeah, it was that a, point right that I, a point that I had was uh, related to this, and it was just that it's surprising to me how much Alethi society like s- celebrates Dalinar once we've seen like how awful his past is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 easy to see how someone like Amram c- could kind of come up with this sense that like I'm more honorable than than this guy. Yeah, you can understand it without agreeing with it. Yeah. Yeah, especially without his more, that. especially without his more recent history that w- that we have as readers, the downer that we know, like it has been the last like five years of his life, and um, it's not been what downer has been like for most of yeah yeah his his past yeah um, I don't know I, I have a hard time putting my thoughts together on downer part of the reason that um, you know I, I mean I can't speak to the future of Brandon Sanderson but like when Oathbringer came out and and I read it I was like this is the best book he's ever written and, and a big part of that was the just magnitude of what he did with Dalinar and and the focus of that is this climactic uh, decision that he makes. And it, it, I, I, uh, like I said, I'm having like a hard time putting my thoughts together on it. Mm. It's it, it's such a great example of uh, of like masculinity, basically. It's, it's a man who uh, is willing to own up to his weaknesses and at the same time use his strength for what he needs to. You know, this is a guy who's, who's had over the course of this book in, in the current timeline and in his flashbacks, some serious breakdowns, you know, and could have very easily gone off the rails, but with a little bit of outside help with a little bit of philosophy in the form of the way of Kings, um, he's willing to reflect upon his own failings and reflect upon his own strengths and find a way to better himself moving forward. I, I think there are a lot of applications for this kind of mindset in, in our modern world. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who could really benefit from reading Oathbringer and taking some lessons from it. I know I read this book, and I feel I benefited from from taking some lessons uh, from Dalinar, um, I'm not gonna say you know I was like some broken person you know before reading it and this book changed my life. I'm I'm not gonna you know try to make those claims or anything. But I know there are people out there who did have that experience. I I personally know at least one person who 
was really struggling with addiction. And between Teft and Dalinar, like, came to a bit of a realization and, and like, made serious strides to better his life because of it. And he's in a way better place today, three years later. You know, like, it's... the the depth and applicability of Dalinar in parts four and five of this book is just on a completely different level from anything else Brandon's done before. Hmm. You know, I wasn't expecting get to get this this deep into it today, but I will back up everything you just said. I mean, I've been I've been very open in the past. I don't really hide it. I don't cover it. I don't sugarcoat it. I myself struggle with a lot of addiction issues. Number one, first and foremost amongst them being alcohol. You know, I've been drinking whiskey tonight. I've been um, pretty pretty professed about the fact that I'm I'm a you know I'm I'm dependent on it at this point, even to sleep. You know, and and reading Dalinar here, reading Teft for a large part was a little surreal because I like I haven't found myself in quite that scenario. And this is this next thing I'm about to say is something I had originally reserved to say during our favorite scenes. Oh. But there is this scene here, a small bottle, the name of that chapter, that legitimately killed me. As a serious alcoholic, I've been in, in very, very similar situations where I, I wake up, I'm sick, I'm ashamed. I'm in denial, and the only thing I can do is 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 fall on family and 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 just sit there and try and and collect myself. And this moment between the two of them, I think this was going to be my number one scene. It was a tie between this and I am Unity. Obviously, I am Unity, but <laughs> with Renarin, this 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 image of Renarin holding out that bottle and shaking, and starting to tear up, and Dalinar stopping and looking at that bottle. And he's not just looking at that bottle, he's looking at everything that bottle represents. And it's su- it's something that hit, it ripped my heart out in, in a way that I wasn't expecting to have happened in this book. There's something that clearly reads as if Sanderson has done his homework here. He's not just reaching, he's not grasping at straws, he is legitimately getting in that mindset and he's treating it with the gravity and the accuracy that it deserves and it 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 hits in a way that I think can't be hit in by approaching it any other way it's phenomenal phenomenally done god I just I get chills with that scene with Renar in there and um especially at the very end of it well first of all I'll say it it reminds me a lot of um when um Syl brings the uh the um the black the poison back to kaladin and way the black yeah thank you um and uh so that was that's sweet but my favorite part of that scene is afterwards when um downer asks like what did what did evie say about me and renarin like gives this like glowing statement about how like you know she said that you were uh, the the only honest the only honest officer in the army, an honorable soldier, noble like the heralds themselves, our father, the greatest man in Alethkar, and just like c- coming off of you know everything that we now know about what 
Dalinar did to Evie, what their relationship was like for the, you know, the, you know, dozen or however many years they were married, um, the way that their relationship ended, um, that we're like left with this legacy that, uh, the, the, the legacy that she left with, with her kids, especially Renarin, um, is just so heartbreaking. Um, and, uh, Whew. Uh, it's really cool to me that like Evie almost in a way, like a- after death is able to reach out and she's able to get to him to kind of like, cause this is a pretty pivotal moment for, mm. for Dalinar yeah. in his flashbacks where he's able to, to start to turn some things around. Um, yeah. 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 I'm going to talk about this a little more of my favorite scenes, but as far as Dalinar goes, you know, I, I don't think I have much left to say. Um, I, I, you know, I had one question, though, and this is not for you guys so much as I wish I could ask it to Dalinar. Hmm? He can bring Venli into one of these visions, but why not Moash? Why didn't he think at, at any point or anybody suggest that he perhaps reach out and communicate to Moash and ask, hey, um... What the fuck, dude? What are you doing? Well, why would he... for most of the book, well, I don't think anybody even, at least around Dalinar, nobody knew Moash was still alive. Moash Calvin disappeared did. at the end of Words of Radiance. But then again, they weren't communicating about... And they and they probably just assumed he was killed on the Shattered Plains. Okay, so Kaladin kept that secret that Moash got away, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, that makes way more sense. Uh, what am I saying? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's a secret necessarily. Like, Kaladin let, you know, yeah. Graves or and just Moash didn't... get away, but... Yeah, he didn't really elaborate on it. But He's not Caravans, a very significant player. Yeah, like, Caravans were getting raided all over the Shattered Plains by the Fused. They're like, okay... You know, he was probably killed, and then yeah. Kaladin only finds out he's like still alive when he shows up in Kolinar, and everybody who witnessed him there immediately went into Shadesmar, so nobody even had a chance to tell Dalinar about it. Well, I mean, I don't get the impression that Kaladin thought Moash is even possibly dead at this point, but it still doesn't, now that I think on it, it doesn't make sense that... I mean, even though Kaladin is still aware that Moash is out there somewhere, doesn't mean that Dalinar would have thought to do something like this if they're not even yeah. communicating with one another. You're right. That, that, the, the point doesn't really make sense. It was something that I considered really briefly, but obviously didn't consider enough because like 10 seconds of thought is all it takes to go, oh, yeah, no, but they're not really communicating <laughs> yeah. on this point, so there's well, no yeah, reason and, to... And Dalinar wouldn't have had any reason to to even want to bring Moash in because he doesn't know Moash was part yeah. of the plot to kill Elokar. Or... Yeah, at that point yeah. I had just stopped and like, well, Kaladin would. But then again, Kaladin and Dalinar are not communicating very well. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, yeah, okay. Um, He's also avoiding using the visions at this point because after Odium yeah. popped in, he Right, got right, spooked. right, he was a little nervous on that. Yeah. Okay, I'm time. done with my <laughs> character points at the moment. I'm ready to go into Cosmere. Why any spoilers? Any other character points that you guys have? Um, yeah, I just want to talk briefly about Risen. Risen, and how much okay. I, I love her. Yep. Um, I, I I've said this from the beginning in Way of Kings and in Words of Radiance. Like she is one of my absolute favorite side characters in all of Brandon Sanderson's work, and uh, and hopefully soon hopefully like real soon we'll have a, a dawn shard episode out where we will talk about her at length 
but I just wanted to give her a little shout out because she's wonderful okay. and she yeah. remains wonderful in Oathbringer. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy everything I read about Rizzi. Yeah, yeah. I l- Agreed. So, Sweet. Uh, all right, so Cosmere Gloves, spoiler gloves are coming off. Uh, An hour and 50 minutes be, in. Let's do this. Yeah, this will be a, a full spoiler discussion with the exception of Rhythm of War and Dawn Shard. Uh, do we want to discuss things in the context of the Rhythm of War preview chapters? Or do we want to just so. say no? Okay. I think that's smart. Yeah, um, just, it, it, it's, it's more accessibility, right? There are those who yeah. are going to be... Yeah. yeah, and, and we still have, by the time this is out, you know, we'll have uh, a, Two days. a week and a half still before... Uh, Rhythm of War comes out, so... No, it'll be two um, days. This is November 15th. This one's coming out. Isn't it? No. Yeah? Wait. Yeah? For oh the, sorry, it's, it's, it's patrons for November 8th, but for everyone else... Oh, it's yeah, yeah. For, for patrons, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if you're... Um. Sorry. Yeah, if you're a patron, he's right. <laughs> but if you're if you're a regular public release, this is coming out two days before Rhythm of War is released. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I looked that yeah. up right before we went live oh because I figured gosh. I was going to do that same thing. I can't believe it's this close. Um, yeah. Anyway, all right. So, Cosmere discussion. Spoilers. Okay. Let's yes, do it. this is going to be huge, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. It's about to get real, ladies and gentlemen. Who's starting? Uh, Rob, you, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, you know what? This is perfect that I go ahead because I had mentioned to these guys at the very beginning that there's going to be a small disclaimer that I have for here. Drew, you touched on this very briefly just now. It occurred to me while doing a censor list for a recent episode that, you know, as the three of us have already read and recorded our episodes on Rhythm of War, some of our opinions about theories or predictions going forward are going to be interpreted as, you know, tainted, for lack of a better word, by the fact that we've read the next book already. When this episode is released, though, there's going to still be that two-day gap between like November 15th and yep. November 17th. I don't want there to be any confusion. If you happen to be listening to this in that two-day period, uh, know that any and all of our points going forward, at least, you know, mine for sure as i've written them down here um these are all opinions i had going into rhythm of war this is all stuff i'd been theorizing far before then you know as with the rest of the fandom you know since oathbringer itself was released so we're going forward sterile and my first point here dude dalinar summoning the freaking Stormfather as a freaking blade what are the odds do you think both of you that we see something like this happen in a future book Again, I I hope not. Honestly, you hope not. <laughs> the storm father as a blade? How? F- yeah, it didn't seem very comfortable for him. No, but that might have been because I, I he just like didn't consent Dalinar to it. He didn't accept it. To, I feel like if Dalinar were to do this again, he may be at risk of breaking his bond with the storm father. I thought he was already at risk of it. I think it all depends oh, up to like like the interpretation absolutely. of the spren, what they're willing to do. You know? Yeah, and and the storm father is clearly not on board with it. Yes, but he's becoming more human, and he might change that idea going forward if the moment requires it. You know, if there's something properly if dramatic or something. If I were Dalinar, that is not something I would risk. Oh, I just, I can just, I love picturing this moment where the Stormfather is so cornered as in, in coming forwards in such a human way that he makes that decision in the last moment. It's like, all right. Okay, I accept this. Summon me as a blade. Like, we can do this. And just fighting with that blade would just be oh, so good. 
<laughs> I'm just pitching Dalar summoning this like 50 foot long sword. <laughs> it wasn't 50. Come on. It was like a regular blade. It was just like white light that he stuck into the key at the, the oath gate there, right? Like it's still a storm father, right? But it's well, a still see, a I didn't. I will say, I didn't see what Downar did here as summoning him as a blade, necessarily. I saw him more just, like, filling the key slot. As a key? Perhaps. Yeah. It's yeah. a purer form of what a blade is, almost, yeah. is kind of how I Could you imagine it. a duel between champions with one blade being the splinter, like, the size of, storm, of the Stormfather, wielded blade, yeah. against <laughs> another equally invested sort of odium blade? I just, oh, I get giddy over this kind of shit, you know? Well, like, what? Turning, turning like an unmade into a like or more because like the Stormfather is still bigger than any one unmade in terms of a splinter, right? Like, yeah, but I mean, if we're talking blades, I mean, maybe we'll have right? Dalinar with a fifty-foot shard blade and Odium's champion with a thirty-foot shard blade. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love this idea of like this 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 concentrated amalgamated blade that just uh, I don't know it, it's something that like the, the, the epic fantasy child in me just like looks for and, and, and dreams for you, you just got Odium's me fixated ch- on this ludicrously giant sword <laughs> I want Danny to, dude I want Danny to sketch this Dalinar with a 50 foot blade <laughs> Just and if you like look close our, our on it, it's got eyes and a mouth that's like, uh, Our no. thumbnail for this episode is like a tiny little stick figure and then just a giant sword. <laughs> <laughs> the Stormfather is an actual shard blade. Yeah, so I'll let Odium's you guys... champion can bond the Everstorm and then... We, oh, jeez. I raise my hand. The storm responds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, you guys take the next one before I continue with more ridiculous... All right, um... Uh, in the epilogue, okay. we have—I mean, we have some really interesting stuff with Hoyt in the epilogue. Obviously, he's—he's he's using awakening on the doll. Uh, he bonds a cryptic and becomes a night radiant light weaver. You know, like we got some really, you know, really cool stuff going on here. But, but there's a, a more subtle thing, of course, in it, and that is uh, one of these indicators about how Hoyt cannot inflict harm on other people. And that includes himself, where he's like he needs help to get his tooth knocked out, right? Hoyd's like, you know, like just driving this guy nuts, yeah. Until uh, you know, until he just gets like punched in the face, and one of his teeth pops out, and he goes, "Success! Thank you, dear man." You know, and. Why the heck did Hoyd need his tooth knocked out? I wish you had asked this 24 hours ago. Why in particular? Because uh, Don Shard... Uh, uh, Brandon had some commentaries on Don Shard that... Yeah. Yeah, but... I'm at sea. But why specifically a tooth? Like, why specifically do you need a tooth knocked out? Like, like I don't, that I, that's what I don't understand. Like, I, I understand that Hoyt you're can't saying, hurt himself. Okay, you're just saying, why does he want to do it that way? Like, like, why does he want a tooth separated from his mouth? Maybe in the same way that he it's, needs uh, hair cut or nails trimmed in that it's a dead part of one's own body? Are teeth, like, really... I don't, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm, I'm literally you just, just asking, like, shooting I, I mean, the dark I th- here. I, I really I'm, just read it as part of his disguise. Like, he wanted to... 
he just he's, wanted he's trying a new... to play the part of the beggar. Oh, yeah. but he was also uh, imitating like a beggar, right? Like a pitiful yeah, figure yeah. that maybe he's, he he's just trying to because to... he tries to sneak up to the. Yeah, he, he tries to like look like a like some kind of sloppy beggar, or whatever. So yeah, that he's he can worried sneak that, that the, the fused will recognize to the him, tower right? to the castle unnoticed. Right. Yeah. I, I just. I mean, why does he want the so tooth knocked extreme. out? Like, <laughs> I, I I read that as my reading of that is that it's just Hoyd being being Hoyd and thinking. I mean, this is the guy who um, who got off the wagon with Tallinn and beat his head with a rock a few times to make a point about how dull his point passenger that, yeah. was. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I that's kind of oh, to me also, it's almost just like Hoyd having fun. How did he do that? Yeah, you, you asked this up? question in a previous yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah you did. Yeah, thought yeah, like yeah. maybe he had been hitting himself with his thumb or <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. and he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I vaguely remember that now. And I, um. I think I remember saying something like, "Oh, for all we know, it was a light weaving, and it wasn't actually Hoyd hitting himself. It was just yeah, an illusion yeah, or something yeah. like that." Yeah, like, yeah. You never. But, know. but yeah, I, I just found that strange. <laughs> that like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. Oh, wait. Hold on. You mean to tell me, Drew McCaffrey, you found something about Hoyd strange? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. Um, <laughs> you know, but now I, he has a sprint. I I have to say, mm. like, I have like six or seven things highlighted here, but I actually don't know if we can really talk about them. Okay. I mean, I've got a few things specifically here that I want to talk about that we could have just as easily talked about if we didn't have any context for the next book. Uh, Celebrant. Let's talk about Celebrant really quickly. Um. Uh, Sill briefly has this discussion with Kaladin about the birth of Spren, traveling to mm-hmm. places where the power coalesces and starts to be aware, and the concept of coming back with a child. I wanted to ask your thoughts on this, and there's another quote here before we go into that. Parts start to be aware in these places where the power coalesces, and it kind of lines up with what we know about significant chunks of investiture be- mm-hmm. becoming self-aware. Um, yeah. Or at least I think I remember something like that. Yes. You know, uh, any significant chunk of investor will become self-aware. Could this be? And I wonder, because Tanavast is dead, would these bits of his investiture, particularly the nail spren, even be self-aware in the first place if the vessel of honor was still alive? Like, is this why perhaps the cultivation spren I think are less conscious because you know the vessel is still alive. Well, I think they are able to create new spren in this manner because honor is splintered and Tanavast is dead. Right. And that Which is... uh, before he was splintered, he could just splinter off small pieces of himself to create new spren. Um, and now they have to kind of do that themselves as perpendicularities are forming. Uh, but I, I don't know about the cultivation thing. I mean, cultivation spren are clearly just as aware. What do you mean? Oh, well, you mean with Windle. like, like well, sorry, not like, yeah. yeah, I didn't mean like cultivation spren like Windle. Uh, this is, sorry, I'm, I think I'm uh, making a mistake of description here. I mean like the, uh, the mindless spren that form the shard plate, for example, the wind spren and the life mm. spren and the creation spread. The fact that they're not really quite as sentient, I think, is because perhaps... This is... You know what? I think I'm actually forgetting something that's been... Oh, I don't know if I can talk about that yet. I'm, like, really drawing myself in knots here. So, 
according to word of Brandon, all of the Radiant Spren are, uh, to some degree or another, a blend of Cultivation and Honor. Okay. And, okay. and I think it's just a matter yeah. of magnitude that, like, all of these lesser spren are just smaller pieces of investiture that are not big enough to develop sapiens. Okay, so take Aeona and Sky, Devotion and Dominion. Uh-huh. Their vessels were killed, right? Their 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 power, their, their mm-hmm. power was, was splintered. But the power needs a conscious mind to direct it. So the fact that, that they don't have that is why the, the cognitive realm around Cell is so dangerous, correct? And apparently the land itself is developing consciousness there. Right, because, because any of significant chunk yeah. of investiture needs mm-hmm. to start becoming self-aware. That's what it right. does. So I'm thinking because Tanavast is dead, mm-hmm. that explains why... This area, whatever it is, I assume, I, I think it's the origin, you know, where the power starts Certainly to coalesce. Um, these these little these little splinters become self-aware, and I think that is in some way driven because there is no conscious mind yes. to direct. Yeah, the power that, of honor. absolutely. That's that's what I'm okay. saying. Like, yeah, sorry, I, I probably just honor explained it very poorly. Yeah, before honor was splintered, this didn't happen. He made his own honor spren. But yeah. Okay. Since he's splintered now, the honor spren can go to where it's coalescing right. and developing sapience and like form it into whatever you know a new thing. Do we Do think you, that? Do, does this make sense to you, Josh? Yeah. Stormfather. Yeah. Stormfather says that he can create them too, right? Because mm-hmm. he's got that power. To, he just has kind of stopped doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he, he can. To a few yeah. He he rides the perpendicularity basically. So. Here's an interesting question. Do you think they're perca- they're perhaps becoming more self-aware because Tandavast is dead in a way that Tandavast couldn't that, that they couldn't have before he died? I don't know about more self-aware, but I think uh, there are more like more human like, in a way. Uh, I think there's more possibility with their bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's it's, I mean, it just came to me. That's why I asked yeah. it. But yeah, that's uh, interesting so to consider. I, I have I have a question. Um, Mm-hmm. We see it for the first time in part four, the high storm in in Shadesmar. We know the high storm is a perpendicularity. By yep. description, by function, it has to be a perpendicularity. Why the hell doesn't it act like other perpendicularities in Shadesmar? Yeah. Um, because I for me I just think it's because the high storms predate the arrival of honor, and so that they're, they are in like they're they're tied in the minds of men, and so the minds of men kind of assign that to the high storms instead of letting it do its own thing. I don't know. That's just I, uh, well, I, I think Drew's th- point is like why why isn't it like this like glowing pillar of like light where like yeah. oh if you just jump in then you just you yeah. know, right to the other side. Why can't you transition? Like obviously because we know Patgy. The other right? ones aren't defined by the thoughts of men. The eye of Patgy. Is right. a shard pool is a perpendicularity that predated the splintering of or the shattering of Adenalcium, and yet that acts as a regular old perpendicularity. Yeah, because and that's no very much no, but it's very much formed by the thoughts of men. It's literally been created into a god, Patgy. Well, you know, it's worth mentioning that there's okay, even yeah. there's mentions of honor's perpendicularity. Like you can, yeah. you can go through honor's perpendicularity. There's just a comment that it you can't like predict where it's going to appear. So it's weird that the, yeah. the high storm itself is very predictable, but Not and acts as a perpendicularity and, in every way except for facilitating transfer from the cognitive to yeah. the physical. 
it, yeah, it, but I mean, it's super didn't weird. Tanavast give that duty to the Stormfather though? Like, you are going to do this? Like, uh, like I don't know. There has to be something deeper there, like a reason for. You're right. Sorry. Yeah, there I actually, totally I think is. I'm agreeing with you. There has yeah, to be a reason. There right? has to be a reason. I just yeah, what yeah. The I'm hell is with it? you guys. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to sound contrary there. You guys yeah, are totally yeah. on to something. Like, like I, I, I thought for sure because early in this book, when Dalinar like talks to the Stormfather about the high storms and charging he's like what are the high storms and he's like it's a moment when the the realms become one and and energy mm-hmm. channels from the spiritual and, and to the physical and it charges your stormlight and it's like okay yeah so it's a perpendicularity <laughs> but yeah. why the heck you know why the heck <laughs> i think it's just this it's, is so you go ahead this is my thoughts on it but i this is not super formed i haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this before um, so I, maybe if I like really dug into this, there'd be some kind of problem. Um, the way I kind of visualize it in my mind is that the, the perpendicularities in a high storm are like, like mini perpendicularities, like smeared out all over the place. Mm-hmm. So if there's any like hard science fiction fans, they're going to probably cringe at this, but like you can imagine like a perpendicularity as a black hole, right? And a normal like shard pool, like normal perpendicularities that we talk about is like this like really massive black hole that anybody can just go and like jump right into. Right. But you can have black holes that are like super duper duper tiny, mm-hmm. yeah. like the physics the size of an it. atom tiny. Right. For it, yep. So so in my mind, like I wonder if the high storm is kind of like that, like these like mini minuscule perpendicularities kind of smeared out that are too small for like a person to go through. Mm hmm. But enough that that investiture can pass through. Um, but then maybe like every once in a while, like enough of them like clump together in one spot that you get like a big enough spot no, that a, listen, a person can go. Through. There are always more mysteries about the high storms we're gonna find. Out. Yeah, because this could very well be one of them. Because the way I always envisioned it was that the moment, that like infinite moment of stillness, when the storm father appears, or when the visions hit. Like that's the perpendicularity. Yeah. That's when the spiritual yeah. is connected. Um, yeah, because time in the spiritual has no meaning. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then, of course, there's the cryptic description of perpendicularities on Threnody as well, where we know a shard was splintered, and that they are temporary and move like honors. And the the description of them as morbid uh, always like to told me that it's like whenever somebody dies and gets turned into a shade on Threnody, a perpendicularity opens. So it's like it's going to be super dangerous for you to use it because of the nature of the shades, and it's morbid because it's created by death. Yeah, and it's super small because it's but they're death, small. And then it's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it, the, the more we find out about perpendicularities, the more complicated it gets. Yep, <laughs> and we like, have hey, the pieces. Hey, Brandon, we just don't give, know how give they give me fit. some answers. Like, <laughs> yeah. So. Yep, yep, yep. Um, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, so the chapter hypocrite. We see another version of Noadon in his like older, yes. sort of weirder <laughs> self. <laughs> This is the good stuff. Yeah. Um, you know what? I'm just going to leave it out there and say, Josh, 
The no, f- I don't know. I have, I have no idea what the answer to this Dude, is. Dalinar's um, weird visions and dreams or whatever they are. And the Stormfather is like, what are you talking about? I don't know what yeah. you're saying. So it's, it's the second one, right? There's the He has one at the end of Words of Radiance mm-hmm. where he's like in his like childhood home and there's like some practice and play... You know, childhood yeah. toy swords. And a golden light outside the window. And a golden light. Yeah, and the golden light <laughs> that envelops him. Yeah. Which, early, like, in Oathbringer, I kind of, thinking back on that, and then you meet Odium, and it's kind of yeah. like, oh, golden light, is this, like, an Odium thing? But, like, the the Noodon vision, like, nothing about that yeah. feels like Odium. Yeah. And they've got to be related, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a, a weird a weird dreamlike vision that Stormfather says wasn't him. Like there's even something be... going on at the end of The Way of Kings when Dalinar is talking about Noadon. He's like, there's something there. There's something I'm missing. Noadon, the man who wrote The Way of Kings, none of it lines up. And I'm like, yes, there's still something we're going to find out. But I get the feeling that it's not going to be for six more books. <laughs> See, I have, uh... I have a theory about this. But I okay. can't bring it up because Rob hasn't read Dawnshard yet. Whoa! Okay. <laughs> that that bitch slapped wow. me from left side. I wasn't <laughs> I, I wasn't ready for that. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah, we're we're reading. Or, or Dawnshard came out yesterday, and and Rob hasn't finished reading it yet. So no, no. Um, Truth be told, he hasn't started reading it yet. He's working all day today. Oh, um, you didn't start it. Oh, I thought you started. No, I didn't it even start it yet. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. Um. um yeah. Okay. I. You know what? I want. I want to take five minutes to talk about something that I've been waiting to talk about for years. This needs a little bit of pullback. Um. For, first off, I was actually just listening to our pre-episode of Oathbringer Part Three, which was last week's episode, and in it, Drew, you you were briefly talking about Elokar's death. And how, as a younger writer, you yourself had a scene very much like it in the draft of a book that uh-huh. I myself have read. And you were like, oh my god, Brandon, what are you doing to me now? If I ever release this own version, people are going to accuse me of like plagiarism or inspiration here. Uh-huh. Let's talk real quick about our insp- inspiration and how we write our stories. Because this week, I had a, a moment very much like this to share. Uh, one of the books... Um, you know what? No, I'm going to back up one more step. One of the things I like to do as an avid reader is to try and predict things that, that are going to happen. We all do this, right? But we've been very open on this podcast about how we are readers particularly prone to that. I've been very open about what kind of reader I am. I'm a clue hunter. I confess yeah. that at times, you know, it could ruin parts of a book for me that for others are still awesome, right? And sometimes, if you can believe it or not, sometimes I actually predict something that's going to be correct right (laughs) and i'll be guessing at this answer to a particularly like a a really juicy mystery and i'll think oh my god this could be what's happening you know x and y so and so is going after so and so else because of reasons and that might actually be because this is happening to them and it's all linking back to yada 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 and you know a lot of the time i'm completely wrong and when i'm completely wrong on one hand i'm a little disappointed but on the other hand, a small part of me gets excited because I realize at this point that, oh, well, I'm wrong. But if I want, I can just do that in one of my own series. It, it was wrong, but it's a really neat idea to pursue yeah. on the side. And now I want to write the thing <laughs> that I wanted to read before and I got wrong. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. And now we link this back with Stormlight. 
before Words of Radiance was released, I'm talking years ago, this is like 2013, 2014, I was listening to The Way of Kings, the audiobook at work, again, and I got the idea that, oh, hey, maybe the Parshendi are so, like, alien, and the entire world is so alien, because, oh my god, what if the Parshendi evolved there naturally? And humanity was just the parasite and introduced, not bred or evolved there, but the invaders. That oh my god, that would be freaking amazing! And it was such an awesome, neat little central paradigm shift. And it also happened to coincide with a time in my life when I was massively restructuring one of my own series in terms of like meta plot, origins, that kind of stuff. And I figured, well, my theory about the Parshendi and humanity again. This is we we only had book one at this point. It's so far-fetched. I'm so stupid. People are going to laugh at me if I bring that up. I got, like, nothing to go on here. I just... So I just... I'm brainstorming for my own books, and I end up making some very drastic changes to the origin of mankind there. And I myself begin to plan things kind of around that same sort of twist. I planned, and for those who have heard our 50th episode special live stream, you can find that on YouTube for my biggest series to have that kind of revelation in the Octillion <laughs> Cycle. That's that series. It was going to be revealed in book four out of five. It's going to be a five-book series. Right near the end, that mankind didn't originate on that planet. They actually came from another world, and they kind of arrived like Columbus upon the natives of North America, just heralding extinction for those who called this their home. And so there came to this point in Oathbringer where we got the translation of the Aela Steely. And to the biggest shock I've probably ever had whilst reading, I heard what I thought was my own major plot point repeated back to me. I was like, what? what? And then it took me some serious thought before I realized, oh, oh, wait, I got that idea because I made some sort of offhanded, off-minded prediction with almost <laughs> nothing to go on to substantiate it years ago. Seven In this, years like, ago. <laughs> with Stormlight here. Oh, my God. I was right back then. <laughs> and now I'm sitting here kind of cornered like, and oh now you're, damn! You're I don't know what the hell to like, do what now. To do it's with been your own series because of it. <laughs> it's it's been six years of brainstorming that I've had since then. Hundreds and hundreds of bullet points, like in in scene ideas and character ideas, that all in a in a weird way kind of orbit around this centripetal idea. And I'm just like ah, you know what? A major twist that I was planning on on introducing very late in my series. I just accidentally got right in a different you series entirely. You know what? My What's up? Keep it. Okay. Smick your own Kay. spin on it. So that's what I did. That's what I was thinking. You know, I've had three years since this book was released to think about how the fuck I'm going to write myself out of this. <laughs> right? And I think this is going to be the way I do it. I think I'll just establish it as, like, societal lore early on. You know, it's yeah, just yeah. taken for granted. In, in Stormlight, it's like, oh, big reveal. If I just start off with, like, oh, hey, this is taken for granted. People know that they didn't originate sure. here. yeah. Might work yeah. a little better, and, yeah. and also then, for and me, like it's like we're talking about new, millennia. Yeah, you you can if you have that lore, and then you can build in some new twists on top of right. That. In yeah. Stormlight, we're talking about millennia. We're talking about thousands and thousands of years. My own book uh, books like seven hundred to nine hundred years is not even one mm -hmm. millennium. So, yeah, yeah. But still, I was floored yeah. by that. So when you raised <laughs> that point, I was just listening to last week's episode earlier today, Drew, and you were like, "Ah, oh, I had a point so much like this," and I'm wondering. Damn it, Sanderson, you're killing me. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. Oh my god, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Nice. Rant done. Next. So, I have... Is it... Oh, 
is it worth talking about the the Iriali and like the whole like long trail and how that fits in with the humans arriving? Ooh. How does that something? Uh, we touched on that briefly. Yeah, we have been... we have touched on that already, but but it is at least worth talking about because we know the Iriali came later. Yeah. They were not we? part of the Ashen migration. We know that. How? Word of Brandon. Okay. Um, and that's why I'm they have their today. divergent genetics with the literal gold hair. It makes sense. And, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, um, I think it's worth noting that this is their fourth land, and they're supposed to have seven. Yep. Yup. <laughs> I, I think I had a... Oh, no, I'm going to stop talking. I can't remember which episode I talked about that on. I had like a super harebrained theory about them at some point on one of our episodes, but we've recorded a bunch of them out of order, and I want to make sure that it wasn't. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, no, 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 no. It was with Josh um, because you mentioned their golden yeah. hair, and I was like, "Why golden hair? I thought it was white." And, and Josh is like, "No, no, no it was or silver." And Josh is like, "No, yeah. their skin is silver." I think so I think I brought it. I think I brought it up in a Rhythm of War episode. Yeah. actually. So. Oh. Yeah. Um, no, no, you didn't. No, I heard. I definitely heard a pre of it. No, it wasn't Rhythm of War, but we'll still we'll, yeah, we'll skip. I'll, past I'll it, skip yeah. past that. <laughs> uh, one thing we like to say one. on Shardcast is that time is irrelevant in the spiritual realm. So yeah, yep. exactly, exactly. Spoilers yep, yep, don't yep, matter. Yep, yep. No, <laughs> I have an NDA that I cannot break. <laughs> also, since we're on the, the 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 subject, this revelation that humanity are the invaders, that they destroyed their original you know world with surge binding we're supposed to buy that so many thousands of years later no. you know teft sigzil bridge four they're just all willing to pull away from dalinar at least entertain the notion they feel like they might be the bad guys after they're suddenly not certain about their moral position in defending their lives and their planet from a tide of merciless immortal demons led by the god of everlasting hate so, off. Uh, I, I do think it's realistic that they would be uneasy and scared, especially because yes. they're all very new to it. Yes. But I also, like, I read that scene the first time, and I was like, nope, don't buy it. This is mm-hmm. not the whole story. Like, I, yep. I refuse to believe that's the whole story. It, it, yep. it is so flimsy. There's, there's, there's no chance in hell... Yeah. That a, a rational person, let alone somebody who's under the oath to protect like they are, well, yeah. would suddenly just start to doubt yeah. themselves. The, the was biggest like, thing was that, like, if if they used the searches to destroy Ashen, and then we know they came to Roshar, and it was sometime after they came to Roshar that the Knights Radiant were founded, and we saw Noadon talking about founding them, or talking about the idea behind it in Way of Kings, and how... They needed to, like, put strictures on surge binders that that the ideals are necessary to make sure that surge binders are not out of control. Okay, they have the ideals now. If they tr- were going to try to do something that would destroy Roshar, they're going to break their ideals, and like it, it, it just doesn't line up for me. It doesn't line up. But they also don't have honor. Honor's death mattered, according to Nail, at some point. But didn't yeah, honor die like, after the recreants? He did. He yeah. did. But I'm speaking to the the modern radiance, and as far as should they be concerned about surge binding, 
Um, I, th- I think there's still a cause a, a listen, cause for concern. Yeah, but listen, they you're, you're, also you're, um, don't really know that honor being dead might have opened you're up. You're trying, you know, I, I don't know. To you, resist. Yeah. You're trying to resist a god that can destroy the planet. So, oh my god, god forbid you get planet-destroying powers on your side. <laughs> doesn't mean it has to destroy your planet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally get where you're coming from, Robert. I mostly agree with you. Yeah. It, it, like even even going into the context of Bridge Four, you know, uh, like they're they're kind of just like walking away from Dalinar at the end of, of Part Four, and I'm thinking like like this bit of ancient history. I have I have quoted here. You know what Dalinar tells them. What we've discovered doesn't change the fact that we are being invaded. And then Sigzel says, "Well, invaded by people trying to reclaim their homeland." And then uh, another one goes like, "Storms, I'd be mad too." I'm like, really. If you found out that several thousand years ago your ancestors were invaded by killed by another people, you're now willing potentially to like let Odium himself rule or destroy the planet because of that. Yeah. Like, and then Leighton says, "Oh, we're supposed to be the good guys, you know, fighting for a good cause for once in our storming lives." I'm like, "Okay, Leighton," because I totally forgot. Yeah, protecting those who cannot protect themselves or it's totally not valid it's not worthy of upholding because you found out that 300 generations ago your ancestors were dickheads yeah and, and it doesn't make sense that, like, to me a big part of what made the humans so scary in the first place was that they were the void bringers they brought the void they brought the evil god okay the evil god is now trying to kill the humans like, the evil god is on the other side now. Maybe keep opposing the evil god? Like... Yeah. And Dalinar specifically thinks that he can't formulate an argument against that. I'm like, really, Dalinar? I can think of 400 arguments against that right now. Watch me go. Well, to be it just fair, kind of Dalinar reads so was contrived. never the best at thinking on his feet. Like, I don't know. Like, it just, for these, even yeah. for these characters, it just, anything resembling rationality kind of feels thrown out here because we need Dalinar to be completely crushed at the end of part four. And yeah, it just, yeah. it strikes me as a bit nonsensical yeah no it's there's more to it there's yeah. so much more to it yeah. i don't buy it for a second it, just that like was Hebrew. one of those things that like had i read this book if if this were the third brandon sanderson book i had read uh like if i just started with way of kings i i may have been like mm, no i don't like this i don't buy this and and my opinion of Brandon Sanderson may have been irrevocably altered. But because I've already seen him lay long-term plans and complete series before, I trust that there's more to it than this. I was waiting for you to say trust. I was going to say this might dial back to a style yeah. discussion we've had yeah, many like this times. This is one of the, the many, many reasons that it is just not a good him. idea to start with the Stormlight Archive. <laughs> Yep. Like the, it, it, this series requires so much trust in Brandon Sanderson as not only a writer but as an author and a storyteller. Like it, it's uh, that's that's mm. such a tough ask. Yep. Agreed. Um, I only have one more uh, point that I can really bring up. Okay. Um, and and it's about Yellig Nar. Ooh. Um. So we have this whole setup, uh, you know, at the Battle <clears throat> of Thalen Field, and 
you know, there's the army of Void Spren that inhabit all of Amram's troops, and then there's the Thrill that's there, and then there's Yelignar that's just kind of following Odium around. And eventually it goes into Amram. Do you guys think that it was ever in Odium's plan that Dalinar was going to get Yelignar? Because that makes no. sense to me. If he's going to be the champion, wouldn't you give your champion all the surges? But yelling, I mean, the champion has the nine shadows, which kind of seems to me to unite all of the unmade, not just take use of one in particular. Well, yeah, eventually. Hmm. But in this moment, like, I... I think it's too dangerous. I mean, Odium has to bet that Dalinar wouldn't, you know, uh, succumb to Yelignar's effects, like... Asudan and Amram did. I mean, that's dangerous. Like Yelignar, I think, could kill his champion if he doesn't control it properly. It, right. It, but, it strikes me as too why, much of a risk. That's and that's why I think he gave Yelignar to Amram was that right. because okay. Dalinar yeah. didn't immediately just like show Odium he was ready. He was like, "Okay, you go do your thing with Amram. Use up that vessel, but get your job done." And maybe when the battle's over, then Dalinar will be ready for you. I mean, it very much begs the question, who was Odium planning, and who could be capable of harnessing Yelignar? No, see, I think it had to be Dalinar. He's the only one who makes sense that could really... He's a bondsmith. Like, okay, I don't know. It seems to me that of all the people in, in Roshar who could who could have the like strength of spirit and will to deal with Yelignar, it would be Dalinar. Oh yeah, I think Dalinar could. I just don't think Odium would have risked that. But Dalinar, I think, would I actually a, be able to, yeah. I have a hard time speculating on it, because I've always had a... It's never really been clear to me what like the point of Dalinar as Odium's champion is, because the whole... like contest of champions is like honor's idea right yeah so like why like why is odium like proposing a a champion to like who is like so if if he had succeeded like then who is honor's champion and why is dalinar taking him up on that mm-hmm. you know what i mean well um odium so looks... i don't know Sorry, go ahead. i could certainly see that yelignar is a good fit for if you want to like power up dalinar mm-hmm. i don't know what he would have been doing with it though see i um, i you like the world, the, the contest of champions has to be combat in some manner because he was targeting Dalinar for it because Dalinar is like the scariest dude in combat. Yeah, but he's also like mid fifties at this point. I don't think that really matters when you're stuffed to the gills with investiture. <laughs> I mean, I suppose, but like, I don't know. Between, yeah, okay, it's, I guess that's kind of yeah. All right, yeah, I can't really formulate an argument against. I, like, if it was like Kaladin versus Dalinar, Kaladin being Honor's champion, Dalinar being Odium's champion, Kaladin would whoop Dalinar's ass. I feel like, but again, that's only based on the know. fact that Kaladin's a much younger man. Uh, I don't know if he would. <laughs> Oh, Kaladin would spank Dalinar. Are you kidding me? And, and just an honest 1v1? Uh, I mean... <laughs> Come on. With them, with their powers as they are. Oh my god, I'm... could you imagine Kaladin versus, like, OG Dalinar, Blackthorn? <sighs> oh. 
Like without their like without Windrunner powers? With just without any powers whatsoever. Man on man. Kaladar would have wrecked Kaladin. Kaladin would have No, I think yeah. Kaladin would have yeah. won oh, that yeah. righteously. Kaladin barely Come on. survived. Dude, Kaladin one v one Zeth in Words of Radiance. Come on. Yeah, dude. with powers. Still though. Not with honor powers and all the Kaladin martial arts barely training. Survived and, yeah, with- Kaladin barely Kaladin survived Hellraiser. No. Kaladin at his prime versus Dalinar the Blackthorn at his prime. I think if if Kaladin had the surges and, and this is the and dumbest conversation here. we've had in a long yeah, time, but is, I love it. it. Oh my gosh! And then this Goku the will just come in and Kamehameha both of them. And yep, yep, yep. <laughs> like Ultra instinct on their asses. No. Um, uh, do we have any more like Cosmere? If you have any points? thoughts. Kaladin versus Dalinar. Um, Tell us how you think it is. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Did you guys pay any attention to this uh, un, this quote about the unmade by Yezrian? Because I Which it one? caught my attention this time more than I normally. So w- this is when uh, Dalinar's in his flashback. He's talking to Ahu. Oh. And um, and um, he um, Yezrian asks him like, "Which one got to you, little child?" He's referring to the unmade. Yeah. yeah. And he kind of runs through a few. And you know, as us the reader, we're we know that it's the thrill that's really kind of messing with his brain. Um, but uh, Donner says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it says, madness, as you said, then giggled. I used to think it wasn't my fault, but, you know, we can't escape what we did. Uh, we let them in. We attracted them, befriended them, let them out to dance and courted them. It was our fault. You open yourself to it and you pay the price. They ripped uh, my brain out and made it dance. I watched. And then it kind of devolves from there. And I just was like really like hooked on to like what in the world could this yeah like what does this mean <laughs> uh, yeah I do remember that and I remember thinking this must be connected to the insanity of the heralds that has developed since mm-hmm. the uh, final desolation like mm. it it's so it lines up so well they're nine unmade. There were nine heralds who stayed behind and went insane, you know. Like, but how? <laughs> I mean, what? How? <laughs> I hate how many of my uh, lore points in this episode are just me being like, "Yeah, what?" <laughs> but so, are you saying the unmade came after? Because I, the, I'm pretty sure the unmade were before. No, no, I think day. like they during the desolation. I, I think that the unmade are connected with the development of their insanity. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay. That they, by abandoning the Oath Pact, they opened themselves up to influence from it the unmade. became susceptible. Yeah. Okay. And and yeah. because they're still heralds, they're targets, you know. Or just maybe because during the Desolations, they didn't have much time on Roshar, whereas in oh, the thousands that, of yeah, years since... Also, also could very well be... <laughs> I mean, we know some of those desolations. <laughs> they had plenty of time to be yeah, influenced. Coming yeah. rapid fire at the end there, so. Yeah. Um, the Stormfather at one point, he says, and this is something I completely forget until I come across it again every time, Honor promised that Surge Binders would do the same, and this is going back to mm-hmm. the, con- the, the subject of Surge Binding destroying their previous world, Ashen. Um, that they would do the same to Roshar. Honor, according to the Stormfather, Honor promised that Surge Binders would do the same to Roshar. So, prophecy? 
Roshar will be destroyed. I'm telling you, it's going to happen in book five. I think it is. No, not touching it. Ten seconds of silence followed by nah. Not touching it. Oh yeah, we okay. Yeah, good point. Um, Night Watcher, the Night Watcher offers Dalinar many boons, one of which is very clearly Night Blood. Yep. Another bit of juicy info, I guess. Um, whoever or whatever was involved with bringing Night Blood to Roshar, mm -hmm. cultivation clearly has some sort of influence over who gets to have or use Night Blood. Uh, so At this point in I have time? a theory about this. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, and that is, when Vasher came to Roshar, he went to the Night Watcher and exchanged Night Blood, gave her Night Blood, in return for the knowledge of how to hack Stormlight to use it to feed his divine breath need. What the hell? But he couldn't just go there and breathe it in. Oh wait, you need a bond. Never mind. I'm being stupid. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, I think I think he he bartered Nightblood to figure out the hack. I like the idea of him bartering Nightblood. I don't know what it'd be for, but I do like that idea. He probably saw it as a great opportunity because clearly Vasher one wanted to get rid of Nightblood, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I can give this up. Fine, cool. Here you go." Really though. Because Nightblood is so... Ugh, it's Everything like giving away a... he has said in in uh, in Stormlight is like, I'm done with the fighting. I'm, I'm done with the, you know, like... We know from his point of view, his interlude in Words of Radiance, he, like... What, what was the terminology he used in that? Like, he 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 did not care. You know, like, well, I shouldn't say he didn't care, but, um... That seems about right. He's pretty checked out. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. He's pretty checked out. Yeah, but that's like checking out of a 500 megaton nuclear bomb. You still have to at least be prescient of what's going on with it. You can't just give it away. Well, yeah, so he gave it to the shard in... In residence. <laughs> okay, okay, fair <laughs> enough. That's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. He didn't just give it to some random dude. Yeah. Uh... Vasher is enough of a scholar to me that I feel like if anyone can figure out how to do the whole like conversion, I feel like he could have figured that out on his own. Hmm. Um, maybe he, maybe he just wasn't in the mood to. I, I guess in my mind, like if that's the case, if like Vasher gave it to cultivation, which seems pretty likely, like it, how else did it get there? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's easier to say Vasher gave it directly to her than to say that there's some middle step in there on top of yeah. that, right? So, it make to, to me. I buy more the sense that he he thought that cultivation was more trustworthy with it or something I, to that yeah. effect. That could also. I think be. I fall in between you two. Yeah, because I I do like the like Drew's idea that he would have traded it away. That's I like or bartered it. But I also think he is in like you know smart enough to crack the Stormlight code on his own. So there might have been another reason that he would have wanted to barter it away. But yeah, I mean. Oh my god, that's juicy. That's that's very know. very juicy. I like it. The re the really weird thing to me is how did Nail go and and get yeah it? like his cultivation just like handing out <laughs> night blood yeah. to like how was that a good yeah. idea? I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, maybe cultivation is is onto something. But 
Well, maybe cultivation. cultivation can see many yeah. paths going forward, and she's good at predicting what will end yeah. up where. Yeah, there there are definitely a lot of theories out there about uh, Nightblood being a key, you know, key player. I mean, we we've already seen an Oathbringer here. Nightblood's capable of killing Thunderclasts permanently. Yeah, apparently. I mean, one of my uh, public permanently. Like, yeah, one of my public predictions going into Oathbringer. Um, in the Cosmere Theories Facebook group before Oathbringer was released, I thought Nightblood is going to kill one of the unmade. Like, I, I thought that Nightblood is going to do something spectacular. I, I called that yeah, yeah. before we even got Oathbringer. I was like, yeah, it's going to be... Yeah. Uh, I think I saw a post about um, uh, maybe last week or so in the Stormlight Archive Facebook group where a guy was asking, he's like, do you think Nightblood could kill an unmade? And I was like, you know, I I do. I do think it could kill an unmade. I mean, we have word of Brandon that it can't kill a shard, but it could threaten a vessel. Oh, we do have word of Brandon that it cannot kill a shard? Yeah, a shard is too, too big. big, yeah. <laughs> it could collapse yeah, a see, perpendicularity, was... right? We have a word of Brandon that can collapse a perpendicularity and that it could threaten a vessel, but it couldn't destroy the shard. See, I thought it wasn't so much about the magnitude of power, so much as it was about the the way the power is used, because Nightblood consumes Investiture. He doesn't yeah. use it, doesn't fight it, he consumes it. And so I thought, even though it was so much smaller as like a splinter, if you want to call it that, the way it uses Investiture and consumes it might be why it's but, so deadly it to shards gets, as a whole. But it gets full. <laughs> like we, we've oh, that's seen... Right. It, it does yeah. saturate, it kind of gets drowsy once it feeds yeah. enough, right? Yeah, so I yeah. think that's like the key is that like there's just yeah. too I, much investiture in a shard. I think there's also like a, a concentration issue, right? Because like a sh- like a, a shard's power does not normally exist like mm-hmm. in like the entirety of the shard is not like in this one spot. So if Nightblood like eats everything that's like yeah. here within this where I where I am, it can't like suck investiture from you know across the other side of the planet just because yeah. it's the same yeah. type of I suppose what I was. thought was that Nightblood would just keep consuming and consuming and consuming tirelessly until it grew and grew and grew and got hungry and hungrier and more voracious but, but no, yeah I mean full. that was like yeah. it does get full that's a good point I hadn't considered that but I, re- I do remember reading those moments yeah. it, it is interesting like I, I don't know I wonder what would have happened if they had just like sent Zeth to go kill the thrill at the end of the, at the, end of the book like, <laughs> he just whips out Nightblood and Nurgawl Go stick the sword in there. You have a figure holding the black sword up amongst a big red mist field and stuff like that. That would be uh, interesting, to say the least. And speaking of Nightblood... Well, I was just... To wrap that up, like, as for an unmade, I think it's pretty clear it could could kill an unmade. In my opinion. I think, yeah. The unmade are not significant enough splinters that like i don't i don't know just, if it could destroy be an appetizer the storm father or the night watcher but i think it could destroy an unmade yeah yeah I, I think i agree but i also i will say that i wouldn't be surprised if it did uh, I, wouldn't yeah. be, I wouldn't be surprised if it just hurt if it hurt the unmade uh and didn't kill oh, it okay or just like wounded it and made I a mean, retreat it, it killed it destroyed that thunderclass so easily like yep yeah well <laughs> uh, i mean it it also might depend on the unmade. Like I don't know. Like that's true. I, I could see it killing Yelignar easier than I can imagine it killing the thrill. Yeah, yeah. Or or like Moloch or Ashert Marn or yeah. one of one of those like big mindless ones. I want to know more about Diagonarthus, dude. Yeah. I want to know more about. Oh that my one. gosh, yeah. <laughs> the one that 
may or may not even be in Unmade. <laughs> yeah, the one that was rumored to have something to do with the destruction of Akina. Yeah. I um, believe. Scouring of Amy. <laughs> um, yep. But yeah, yeah. So do we have any more uh, Cosmere points, or do we want to go into I our favorite up. scenes? Okay. I, I, have, I have just a few, yeah. Um, since we're still on Nightblood, too, Lift and her odd interactions with Nightblood. I'm a little bit, like, suspicious here. They seem to get along just a little too well. I think there's going to be more with Lyft and Nightblood's uh, re uh, relationship going forward for the rest of the series, perhaps. Um, but the the fact that in Edge Dancer, Zeth didn't kill Lyft, nor did Nightblood, even though he saw her in the hallway, and he's like, the sword likes you. Yes, And in right. this book... And in this book, again, we see it from... I think it was from Zeth's point of view, but he actually realizes, he hears that Nightblood approves of Lyft. And, and, and Lyft is, like, you know, actually having rapport in a weird way with Nightblood. Those two have a, a relationship that's a little hard to describe, but there's something going on there, and I think Lyft and Nightblood will have a future together in some way. I do think there's... Uh, in some esoteric way a neat thematic connection between Lyft and Nightblood with like her unique access to investiture and Nightblood's unique consumption of investiture Ooh! <laughs> I mean, oh my I, god I, I Drew McCaffrey that's the second time today my mind has been blown I, I don't have like any prediction or theory I just find it mm -mm. What's, what's the word I'm looking for? I find it provocative that Lyft is so weird and Nightblood is so weird. And that they apparently get along. And they both literally feed, almost nutritionally, on investiture. That's so weird. You're so right, though. That's interesting. Hmm. Like, Lyft in front of They're... an endless banquet and Nightblood unsheathed next to her, would they'd both just be super happy about it. <laughs> they'd be the same person at that point. <laughs> like, unleashed. And, uh, yeah. yeah. But Lyft is also not happy about picking up swords, so. Also true. Mm. I don't know. Also true. They're a really good pairing. I kind of, like, I don't know that I, like, want, like, Zeth to, like, pass Nightblood onto her because I love, I'm enjoying Lyft's growth a lot. And I, um, I feel like Nightblood would overshadow her. Yeah, I I don't want her to like get Nightblood. I I like <laughs> Nightblood with Zeth, but I feel like at some point, think there's gonna be some junction of Lift and Nightblood. I'll, I'll tell you what I like. I don't know. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just finish yours before I go on. No, I'm finished. Because I, I don't have anything on this. Like, uh, <laughs> I like the idea of, of Zeth having a redemption arc and being a, a like a self-sacrificing kind of character and then passing Nightblood on to Lyft and then they have a really interesting dynamic going forward between books 6 through 10. I, I would like to see Windle and Nightblood. Oh my god, I didn't even consider <laughs> Windle! That poor guy! He's already dealing with so much of Lyft's <laughs> Yeah. Wendell is wonderful. Wendell. I love Wendell. The most I wish I could just like give Wendell a hug and just yeah. be like, dude, it's going to be okay. I'm Long sorry. suffering spread. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, okay, I'm going to change the subject completely now. This could be everything or this could be absolutely nothing. 
um, at the very end in the Battle of Thalen Field, Adolin looks at one of the Thunderclasts, and he thinks that their faces look an awful lot like Chasm Fiend faces. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. I in, during the like the theorizing on in the Way of Kings and Words of Radiance, I thought that perhaps Chasm Fiends with their green eyes, because I also saw other creatures in the Cosmere on Threnody, for example, with green eyes. I thought. This could be a Cosmere-wide thing. I don't know why this made me think, oh, maybe Chasm Fiends aren't native to this planet. But I thought, maybe Chasm Fiends, being described as alien, as foreign, and as monstrous as they are, maybe Chasm Fiends evolved on a different planet, perhaps Braze. That's not the theory I'm putting forward right now. I'm just extrapolating off of that or, or going beside that. Right. Is there a link between, like, Thunderclast faces and Chasm Fiend faces? The fact that the Chasm Fiends are described so much more terrifyingly than other creatures. What's going on here? I mean, maybe Thunderclasts on some level are modeled after like some combination of a singer form okay. and, a, and a Chasm Fiend, but I, I... The only real similarity I see there is that they're both way too big to exist normally and are being like investiture supported. But I, I okay. really just don't know with Chasm Fiends because there's clearly something more going on with those things. And we don't know. I bet there is. Whether it's the Storm Striders or, you know, some connection with the Void Bringers. I mean, there there was the one painting back in Way of Kings of, like, a Chasm Fiend as a Void Bringer. And, and that's played off as, like, oh, yeah, they just painted the most terrifying thing they could think of. Like, well, yeah, but this is also Brandon Sanderson we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So. I, my gut instinct is to guess that the being, the, the um, whatever it is, whatever, like, twisted, fused soul or whatever it is that makes the Chasm Fiends is, like, maybe, um, like... Sorry, makes the thunderclasts like maybe the chasm fiends is just like their idea of something that looks terrifying, and so like that's what they imitate. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. I can see that. Like that's kind of the simple answer. There's something going on with this, perhaps this connection in in the minds of man. Yeah. Mm. And singers. Yeah. Okay. Well. Especially the singers being the original, the you know, uh, life form on that planet. Um, Yasna tells Shalon during the battle of Thalen City, that she can't slip into Shadesmar with only her body. But didn't she do exactly that in The Way of Kings? Or was that the Fabriel at work? Uh, Shallan can, like, can, like, look into it, but she can't go it. I mean, it. Yasna had to save her from drowning in the in the beads at the it, end of The Way of it's Kings. Like a, yeah, it's like a weird, like, mental... This is just, like, Brandon kind yeah. of explaining some things outside the books. Um, like there's a, like, there's a sense that, um, she, um, could, could die there that way, but it's more of like a mental, uh, death, I guess. Mm -hmm. So like when, when, when Yasna pulls Shalon back, um, and Shalon like wakes up, there's a, there's a moment there where Yasna is still in shape. Like is, she's still kind of like a sleeper, like her, she's not like there like present in the okay. situation. And then all of a sudden Yasna's eyes open. So like, there's the sense that like Yasna was in Shadesmar with her, threw her back out. 
and then we get to like look and see like look her body is still here oh okay. she's not actually right. there You're, okay that's a very good mm-hmm. point I, I was about to say, I was like, but then Yasna was looking down at her angrily and saying, never enter Shades Mar without Stormlight. But you're totally right. When when Shallan got back, Yasna was still out for a half more second. So she wasn't there physically. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna just add this to this conversation. I fully expect that there is some possibility for Lightweavers to fully transfer. And Hoyt is gonna figure it out. Because if, because do you know how valuable that would be to Hoyd? To just oh yeah, oh my God, yes, I can figure that. Like, but he's he's gonna figure make it any more likely to be a possibility. Just the fact that he would figure out if it was doesn't mean it's yeah, yeah. I I think the attractiveness of the specific skill set of the order of light weavers on Roshar is like Hoyd's wet dream. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Like shades, um, access very, and light weaving. Yeah, my last point, my very last Cosmere wide spoilers point here, Teravangian, and this is a, a an excerpt from his interlude here. Gavore had accepted to study at the School of Storms, which had legacy access to the Palinaeum for all scholars. Caravanaga, the middle daughter, had been accepted for wardship and had sketched him a picture of the three of them. Little Ruli grinned a gap-toothed smile in the center. She had drawn him a picture of flowers. Teravangian touched the tears on his cheek as he finished reading. None of the three of them knew anything about the diagram, and he was determined to keep it that way. How much do you want to bet that one of these grandchildren has a bigger part to play in books going forward and may or may not take over the diagram or do something in his name um, after he finally passes on, I I think uh, I think that's a reasonable theory, and I know it would fit in with what is also becoming a common theory that Gavinor and Oroden are going to form the core of like a new generation in the back five. Ooh, and maybe one of oh. Caravangian's like oh, grandchildren. Oh, that, that's could not fit, where I thought you were going with that. Could fit with oh, that okay. too. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just again. Looking ten steps too far, but that could be it. That's what you got to do with the diagram. Exactly. If there's one place to do it, it's with Teravangian in the diagram. Um, actually, you know what? Since we're on that subject, I'll say one more thing. Looking ten steps into the future or more, Odium is calmly dismantling the diagram with this scene with Teravangian at the end. It's almost nonchalant that Brandon approaches this revelation that Teravangian was planning to save Roshar through this deal with Odium, and then becoming the ultimate monarch of mankind. This harkens back to the epigraph in Words of Radiance that I glowed about, you know, you must become king of everything, Mm -hmm. you know. It's just, he calmly reveals that, and then continues on. It's just so badass. Yeah. Okay, okay, I think we should move on to three favorite scenes. Oh my god, we're almost three hours into because this. Because we are oh my almost god. Let's, three. Yeah, sorry. I was so really oh hoping <laughs> we been... were going to keep it to like under two and a half, but... This... Ah, oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, favorite scenes. Okay. Uh, Rob, do you want to start? Sure, I'll start. Um, my third favorite scene. Zeth killing the, the Thunderclast at the very end. After he... 
asks Dang it, Rob. Neil if he can. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Wow. Thank you. That's why I wanted to say it first. When he asks Neil, and he's like, "Can I swear to a person instead?" And then the scene ends there ambiguously, and then Lift is on the ground and she's helpless, and then this figure comes slashing down, and the thunderclass just implodes, and it's just oh my god, it's just so much wind, and then that last line we the 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 blackthorn has charged us with whatever it is we have a work to do and i'm just like oh my god it mm, such a good scene okay third favorite yeah so that was also my third favorite and i'll just like continue off on this uh it and i'm gonna quote it because the reason i love this so much is the description is quintessentially brandon sanderson this is one of those moments I've you know called back to in Mistborn and, and stuff like it, it is just burned into my mind. I can see it. An explosion of light appeared overhead, a ball of expanding radiance. Something dropped from the middle of it, trailing smoke, both black and white, glowing like a star. As the monster raised its fist to strike lift, the spear of light hit the creature in the head and cut straight through. It divided the enormous thing in two, sending out an explosion of black smoke. The halves of the monster fell to the sides, crashing into the stone, then burned away, evaporating into blackness. So freaking good. (laughs) I just realized something there. First off, yes, you're absolutely right. Exploding out in black smoke? Like, Yasna transforming that rock at the beginning? Could it be, like, transformation? Density actually causing it to explode outwards instead of simply consuming it? Uh, maybe. I mean, Nightblood for sure like turns everything it touches to smoke. It's so. just the, the description of that black smoke exploding outwards oh, instead well, of simply well, the momentum being of his fall. Yeah, that's true. The moment. Oh my god. That scene is so badass, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love it. Third favorite. Okay, Josh? My third favorite is uh, um, when Dalinar's return uh, to the Rift. Um, oh, the, an Only animal red? that chapter. Yeah, yeah. or yeah, uh, an animal. Um, I, I yeah, just, I just get get chills when I like, just like, I don't know, read about his cold fury in that chapter, and then the the gut punch when he realizes what happens. Um, it was uh, just as strong this time as it was. I remember it being last time. So. I enjoyed it. Yeah, something about him just coming awake with smashing their brains in, and he doesn't remember what's happened. It's like, oh my god. There's there's one or two times earlier in the book where someone calls Dalinar an animal mm-hmm. that stuck out to me this time because of that chapter name. Yeah, that, that that was wasn't that um, one of the Ardents that made Dalinar start to remember uh, the Rift? It, it yeah, Kadash like he kicked off the the memory of the Rift by yeah saying something about Dalinar yeah, being an animal. It's, he was it's like, there. I think, I think there's another one that was earlier on in the book too. Oh yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, nice. I, that I waffled over that scene too. One. This, this time around the, the rift hit me so much harder than, than it did the first time I read it. Um, I, I waffled over that one, but I, I ended up choosing Zeth for pure spectacle. Um, but it's just, it's so powerful. Like, I mean, I complained about Dalinar's flashbacks in like the first couple parts of this book, but there's there's a turning point where suddenly they become just so good, <laughs> so good. Yep, yep. 
All right, Rob, number two. Well, since you were just talking about spectacle, I'm going to go ahead and reverse the first and second place scenes that I had here. So originally I was waiting to say until the end what I thought was very predictable in saying that I am unity was my ultimate favorite scene. I'm going to use that right now for number two since I can still get it in there first before either of you guys. But also because I want to move number two to number one. Um, so right now I'm, sa- I'm going to say I am Unity. I mean, this 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 very well may be the best scene yet in the Stormlight Archive, maybe, that he's ever written. Hmm. The, I, I don't need to say anything else about I am Unity. It's that you know it already. Yeah, it is very good. I will say it's another one that I considered, but ultimately had as an honorable mention. Really? Yeah. I am Unity. Wow. What fell into honorable mention? What the hell, dude? So okay, there's, there's. A th- I'm really, I'm interested now to see what you're gonna pull out for the next one. Okay. <laughs> there's a theme to my top two favorite scenes in this, and mm, and okay. and uh, that is emotional impact. My second favorite scene mm. was Ash and Tom when Tom finally becomes lucid. And says thank you. Yep. And she says, "You have to hate me. Please hate me." And he's just so grateful, and he's got tears in his what eyes. What a gift! And then that last line, he waits for us, and she goes, "Who? I don't know." I just ah, uh. it's really good. It's really. How good. do you explain that scene to somebody who doesn't appreciate <laughs> right? it and how gorgeous it is? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Josh. Josh. Um, so my second favorite I picked was um, the moment um, that everybody enters Shadesmar. The um, the moment that they it's it's that Adolin chapter when they when he first gets there, and he's like looking around and he's like trying to figure out where like where the heck are we? What is going on right now? And he's like identifying like sill and pattern and and maya and he's like he, but he doesn't know who they are and i don't know just the descriptions of like what's going on there and the confusion um i don't know i just really i really enjoyed that this time it was just kind of wild to like see his mm-hmm. in the way that i don't know i really se- savored his like utter bafflement at whatever was going on yeah like Storms. of all the things that he expected to happen like it was just totally like off the road yep. map and it was great i hate this place that line said everything yeah, when he when he's like, yeah, "This is damnation." Good. I have, you know, I have Azure. Uh, yeah, Vivena's like talking to like she's like I over and over again. She's like, "I hate this place." Like, I can't believe we got here. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Anyways, okay. So, all right, Rob. My favorite scene in the entire book. I, I mean, I talked about this earlier. Um, I have an honorable mention I'll get to right after this. It's very brief, but my very favorite scene in the whole book, it was number two going into this. I'm gonna, I just moved it to number one after our conversation. A small bottle. Yeah. And I hate it. I hate that I chose that scene because it hurts to read. It legitimately hurts to read, but it hurts in such a personal, profound, appropriate way. Again, drawing forward to that one scene where Renarin pulls out that bottle and he's holding it out and he's like crying and he's shaking and Dalinar, who has been so decisive and so overbearing and so domineering over his uh, his sons, stops and looking at that bottle, he's not looking at the bottle. 
He's looking at all of his choices. He's looking at the person he is. He's examining the shame inside at being brought to his knees in such a way. The vulnerability there and the way he holds Renarin and just releases. And they sob and they cry together. It's just something that I was not ever expecting to move. I, I, I had never in my life expected to read words that would move me in that way and hit me in that way. And so that scene has to be my number one. And it's not as spectacular as I Am Unity. It's not as interesting or as clever as some of his more uh, fantastical reveals. But there's something about the personal nature of that scene and how it, it, it stabbed me in a place I didn't expect to get stabbed that I have to give it my number one. It was just perfect writing. Well... You you basically just described why my favorite scene is also my favorite scene. Oh. And that is in chapter 71 is a flashback, a sign of humanity. Specifically the conversation yeah. that Dalinar has when he gets into the carriage with Evie. And, you know, she asks him what's wrong. He's like, I was feeling sad or sore. And, and he's like, no, actually, I want to talk. I'm not actually sore. And, and they have this conversation, and he says, you've been praying nonstop. And she says, for the heralds to soften your heart. And, uh, and they, they talk about the rebels and, and how she wants him to show mercy. And she, she kind of, you know, she's crying, and she kind of really spears him. She says, I hate what this does to you. I see beauty in you, Dalinar Colin." I see a great man struggling against a terrible one. And she goes on a little bit. And then he says, what would you have me do, Evie? And the next line broke me. She says, have I won again? She said, sounding bitter. Another battle where I've bloodied you. That line, the fact that she has gone beyond sadness for him to bitterness... rushed me it, yep. it, oh. I hope at some point down the road we get more flashbacks with Evie because she is wonderful again we're, re, we're, we're coming very close to a conversation we just had in the last episode about yep. um, about Evie there in, in that like first off Renarin is going to have a book going forward. Yeah. And so we hope, Josh, you're the one that blew my mind on this. You said, I hope we uh, we get a lot more personal Eevee going forward with Renarin's flashbacks. And I went, oh my god, that ripped my heart out of my chest. I wish that would happen <laughs> so much. Yeah. And Drew, you're absolutely right. Like these moments where, and I, I talked about this in that episode again, um, Dalinar's and, and hers, like their, their conflict, it still feels organic. It doesn't feel forced. Oh, yeah. It doesn't feel like there needed to be something like that. These little spiteful remarks that don't feel uh, superficial, they feel natural. Again, like Dalinar confronts her. He's like, you married? And she's like, yeah, I know I married a soldier. I knew that's what I was getting into. Like the, all these little moments where they're throwing these little pieces at each other. None of it felt forced. It felt organic. It felt natural, and it felt heartbreaking for it. So it's a very, yep. very worthy choice. Yeah. Yep. All right, Josh. What's your favorite? Um, I I should preface this by saying I don't know that like 
any day of the week I ne- would necessarily pick this one. But on this read, this was this was my mm-hmm. favorite scene. Um, this is um, not I am unity or you cannot have my pain. This is the scene right before that um, with Yasna and Renarin. And I this on this read of the book, I, I noticed that Yasna has this ongoing storyline of trying to figure out re- what's going on yeah. with Renarin's sprint. Like right? it's always been there, but it's every like every chapter she's in, like th- she's trying to piece together what's going on with Renarin, um, which is kind of fun that she like showed back up and like that's like the first thing she notices and and is is on to him. And you get to the scene at the end, and everything for everybody is going super terrible she you know she gets to this room where Renarin is where he's like seeing these visions and she and you know the evidence is there like something's not right and she's going to kill him and um it's not even necessarily entirely clear what it is but something prompts her not to kill him and um and Renarin I I was just floored by Renarin's shock that things weren't going according to what he thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's this scene like right before it gets to Dalinar and goes into that whole sequence. Um, he says, I saw you kill me. And she says, it's all right. I'm not going to. And he's like, he's like, you don't get it. Like I saw, like when I say I saw you kill me, it wasn't just like, Oh, I, I thought this might happen. Like this is what he knew was going to happen. And he says, my vision was wrong about you. What I see, it can be wrong. And I just like made me realize that he's been spinning this entire book all the way back to words of radiance. He's been living under this assumption that everything he sees will be what it, like it can't be different than what he sees. And I was just crushed by, I don't know, just the realization that he's been living under that weight until this moment that whole time. And um, I don't know the, the freedom that must come in that moment of realizing that, yeah, yeah it, it could be different than what he thought it could be. Amen. Yeah, that is a really powerful moment. Whew. Well, shall we, since we are now over three hours, <laughs> uh, wrap up our discussion on Oathbringer and head into the final draft? Yeah, yeah. I just I just really quickly want to apologize to our sound engineer, Patrick McCaffrey, and apologize <laughs> to myself in the future listening to this. <laughs> For the obscenely long episode that we've recorded, I, today. I knew um, I, as as soon as our words of radiance part four and five episode went over three hours, I was like, "There's, we're so screwed with Oathbringer." <laughs> I feel so bad. We've spent oh. so long talking about we. Do you understand? How, we've spent how long like was that one. What's that? How long was uh, words of radiance four and five? Oh. Uh, that was like three hours and one minute. Uh, I think it was like three fourteen actually. Let me look it up. No, I don't know. It was like a Let's minute go. or two past. Let's That's go. all it was. Um, I remember looking at the post and thinking, "Oh yeah, we just like got a minute or two past it." Oh no! Okay. no oh yeah, we must have trimmed a good bit. It was three hours and thirty-two seconds. So this is officially our longest episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. We're already past that at this point. We have yet to go into the final draft. So shall we begin? Yes, Rob. What do you got? Okay. So I have two entries. Um, one of which is just a pretty standard entry, another of which I'm going to be bragging a little bit about. So um, I'll start with what I've been drinking for the majority of this episode. Um, it's a Maker's Mark bourbon. I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this has had it a few times. It's probably like my second favorite whiskey that I get on a regular occasion, the Maker's Mark, the 
the the bourbon the Kentucky handmade with a little red wax seal it's just so nice um, but the one I got with this episode in mind and this is not a whiskey this is just a beer I I found this at the local uh, liquor store the LCBO this here is a peach cranberry Rattler Ooh. from Lake of Bays Brewing Company and before this I really didn't know what a Rattler was yeah it's I'll a, admit yeah um, it's a ludicrously weak beer mm-hmm. in terms of alcohol content. Yeah, so a Rattler at a is... whopping two point five alcohol percentage. What's up? I was gonna say a Rattler is basically it's like a shandy. It's it's a beer mixed with yeah. juice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two point five percent ABV. It was refreshing, you know, albeit kind of disappointing in, in, in alcohol content for my lack of experience um that's still on me though i didn't realize what it was when i bought it i'll say there was definitely for what it describes there's a lot of that peach in there didn't i didn't get a lot of the other fruits of the cranberry very much the peach was all in there but because of the peach flavoring i suppose a subconscious part of my brain was also expecting a sweet finish on that peach which it definitely did not have i was sort of like you know, like that moment when you drink a, a tonic water by itself, and you f- you can feel the carbonation in the water, so you expect sweet, but it's not there. It's just a little bit of a disconnect. I can't say I particularly enjoyed drinking this one, um, but it had a pleasant aftertaste. Yeah. It was a good aftertaste. Okay. Um, I put it this way. The burps tasted better than the brew itself <laughs> did. Okay. <laughs> but how was the name? But anyway. Yeah. Uh. Anyway. The name stood out to me, and I bought this thinking of the final battle at Thalen Field. You have the Everstorm approaching, blacking out the sky, lightning, crimson lightning, everything with an angry sort of world-ending vibe to it. This is called Red Sky at Night. Ooh, no way. Nice. Yeah, dude, oh, that's look at good. it right there. Red Sky at <laughs> Night. Thank you. It was like, eh. You're right, it's closer to juice than it is to a beer. But, I mean, I can see myself getting used to it. It would just take getting used to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Josh. Final draft entry complete. Yeah, what do you... Mine, uh, mine was actually super fruity as well. Um, this is a, a Edmunds Oast Brewing oh, Company yeah. uh, in... Uh, Charleston. <laughs> Drew's <laughs> eyes there, the, the light like, that yeah. dawned inside... Yeah, I've, have you had this? Maybe uh, you've had this I, one before. Yeah, we'll uh, see. This, this particular one was a, a, a collaboration, apparently, with Ferris Artisan Ales. I don't know much about them, um, but um, this one it says it's a it's an imperial sour ale brewed with lactose and sea salt with passion fruit, mango, and guava added. Um, Holy! It was super fruity. <laughs> it was super sour. Um, I almost didn't really feel like a beer, but I enjoyed it. Um, it uh, had a 7.5% alcohol content, so it was not uh, not as light no. as worse, but um, I uh, it was it was good. I enjoyed it. Uh, I like sours, so um, but anyways, I, I picked this one. This is uh, this is for Brandon and his ability to just completely always one up all of my expectations. <laughs> it's called Order of Magnitude. Nice. <laughs> nice. I like it. It's so appropriate for a Brandon Sanderson book. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I have not had that one before. So the the only Edmunds Oast beer I've had that's was actually awesome. a collaboration with Westbrook Brewing Company, um, okay. which is in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, I think. 
Um, they're mm-hmm. they're really good, really good. But uh, yeah, the one I had was a a nutter butter uh, barley wine, which was really good. Okay, very tasty. Uh, it was the called "There's a Nut and butter. butter Than a Nice Pair of Cam Pants." <laughs> oh. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> they they've got some amusing names. I've, I haven't had much of theirs, but um, they've got a one called uh, "Cereal for Breakfast" is the nice. name of the beer. They've got a got some good ones yeah yeah um well noise the beer i'm drinking is one of my favorite local colorado beers um it is from high hops brewery in windsor colorado uh and and high hops holds a special place in my heart because uh it's a just down the road from from where i live and b my wife uh, worked there for a while, um, and and this beer is a bourbon barrel aged Russian Imperial Stout, clocks in at ten point five percent, and it is uh, maybe the most underrated beer in Colorado, in my opinion. They only started canning it recently. It used to only be available on tap, uh, and and this batch they canned is. A little like woodier, you get a little more of the barrel um, flavor in it than than the really chocolate malt and sweet bourbon uh, from the first batch that I had. But it is still really good. Um, but this one, this one goes out to Dalinar. Uh, the name goes out to Dalinar, but the label art actually goes out to uh, a, a different character. That I'll show you guys in a second, but the name is One Night Stand with a K. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well done. Um, oh my god, it's but such a terrible pun. I, I don't I know love if it. you can see it, but the knight on this label is flipping off the giant yeah. god demon in the background. <laughs> so this goes out to Rua as well. And Lopin. <laughs> oh, Rua, the little. Yeah, yeah. Okay, don't wear it out, knock off. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I had I actually had a pretty tough time deciding which episode to bring this beer on because there are so many points in the Stormblood Archive where one Night Radiant makes a stand. <laughs> yeah, but I decided yep. the most epic of them has to be Dalinar walking out alone to face Odium with a with copy the of The Way of Kings, and. Uh, and and that was a moment that this beer deserves because I truly love this beer. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and Rob, awesome. when you when you come down visit us at some point, you will absolutely be uh, taken to High Hops. So sweet. Um, I look forward to the hangover. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but I think that that is finally a wrap for this episode. This has been episode 92 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, uh, two days from when this episode is released to the public, we will have a spoiler-free review on release day for Rhythm of War. And next Sunday, in episode 93, we will have a spoilerific discussion of part one of Rhythm of War. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And... uh, Oh, get ready, because Rhythm of War is something. 
Yeah, those are all recorded. Yeah, already. I can't. They're believe they're already That's lived awesome. up and ready good. to go. Um, and unfortunately, I would normally say here, if you want early access to those episodes, support us on Patreon. But because of you know non-disclosure agreement things, we are not allowed to release uh, those uh, first couple of Rhythm of War episodes early, since the book will not be out yet. However, if you support us on Patreon, you will get access to our later Rhythm of War episodes early. So check us out at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud to support the show. As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. And our special guest, Joshua Harkey. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Dude, thank you for sticking with us for like, what, 20 yeah. hours of Oathbringer, was it? Like, we've, we've unbelievable. taken up like approximately one full day of Josh's last month. Uh. We've monopolized so much of his time, and I appreciate it so much, dude. You can never You're talk a rock about star, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that is a wrap for this one. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone.